Direct to Video Connoisseur podcast. As always, this is Matt here, and I am joined by a very special guest this week. I've got Scott Murphy of the New Horror Express podcast and the All 90s Action All the Time podcast. Welcome, Scott. Thanks for having me, Matt. It's very good to be here. Yeah, for people that, that aren't familiar with your, your shows, um, I know I was on the All 90s Action All the Time one. I think we'll, we'll chat about that. That's a, I think it'll come out just before this this episode is released. Um, but yeah, for people that aren't, aren't familiar, what what are your two podcasts about? Oh, yes. Uh, well, since you mentioned uh, your appearance on All 90s Action all the time, I'll, I'll start with that one. Um, yes, uh, your episode of that will come out probably just a few days before this. It'll be We were covering uh, Batman Returns, and um, you might be on a future episode as well. Uh, <laughs> very close to that. Uh, but... Um, yeah, so all 90s action all the time. It's gone through a couple of changes. Basically, uh, me and my regular co-host, uh, Craig Jaheim, who also has his own podcast, uh, Bloodhound Picks, uh, we just look at 90s action films and we usually have a guest on and we just break down the plot of uh, each film. Uh, the kind of original format was that we were doing seasons and uh, looked at um, all the films of a particular actor in the 90s. So we did like four or five seasons of that. Um, we did Steven Seagal, Sylvester Stallone, Val Kilmer, Kurt Russell. Was that it? Um, yeah, uh, yeah. I think that was that was the four seasons we did. And then, but then we started going more kind of just film by film it was a bit of a random year this year we thought we were going to close it down but then we came back and we're just kind of doing and then next year going into 2023 we'll be looking at any film uh celebrating a 30th anniversary so films coming out that came out in 1993 now so we're and we're going to be monthly now um so yeah kind of, kind of in terms of release schedule and in terms of uh how we clump it together a uh, bit of bit of a change but that's what all 90s action all the time is all about and uh, new horror express is an interview show it's a fortnightly show where I chat to indie horror directors, uh, actors, writers, uh, novelists, uh, just anybody who's who's working in in horror today, mainly of the kind of independent variety. But yeah, I've I've talked to a whole bunch of people. Uh, that's been going uh, well at the start of next year, 2023. It'll have been going for uh, five years. Um, I think I've put out. Uh, I don't know, over 170 episodes. So yeah, uh, it's still going strong. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, yeah, it's um, it's it's interesting because you, you know you, you're talking about like sort of the release schedules for them, and it, excuse me, it, it is hard to like like you said you said uh you know New Horror Express is, is fortnightly, and so now you've you've always got to kind of line up that guest right for every every two weeks, and then saying like okay, now I got to line up my guest for another one. Um, it, you know, I think. It's one of those things where you, I don't know how to explain it. Like I know for me with my podcast, that this is like the first year. This this year is going to be the first year that I've been able to get a podcast out every every fortnight, um, like successfully. Like that there wasn't a, 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 a you know a, a, 
a period here or there that I was supposed to do once that I didn't get one out. And so I definitely uh, tip my hat to you that you have two podcasts and the fact that, that you're you know, even dialing it back to once a month for the, uh, the all 90s one, uh, I still think uh, it's still, still quite a feat to be able to get them out that much. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, I just, um, I, I try my best. Yeah, sometimes uh, with the New Horror Express, sometimes I don't quite manage it, you know, with the, I, I don't think I've released every fortnight in the last, in the last five years. Actually, it's kind of, that release schedule's kind of gone up and down as well, because originally it started as a monthly podcast, and then um during the pandemic i went a bit mad so like um that's when we had like the seasons of the the action podcast and new horror express during that time in kind of there was a period in 2020 2021 where new horror express was going out weekly so like i just had podcasts <laughs> just recording podcasts all the time to stave off boredom and madness i think <laughs> well that was the thing i think with the pandemic is that all of us um our, our eyes got too big right like because we just looked at it it's like oh we can really get content out there i know a lot of people um people were like revisiting old podcasts that they did before and, and you know all yeah. that kind of stuff yeah. and um the one the one um podcast i have to hand it to is that the guys that come up as reviews um, ty and brett they have they, they always stuck with the same format the first and 15th and of course it helps in their case because they've got each other to be you know so like they they, they never have to worry about if they don't get a guest you know, they can just do the show um it's just the two of them but um, but yeah, that 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 was one of the things I think even for me, like when I got into the um the the pandemic, I know with, I I just started my blog again in like late 2019, and I went to a period where I was like doing like maybe like three a week um uh, blog posts, and then then what happened was I you know the world kind of came back into uh, I don't want to say it's, it's back to normal necessarily, but it's like kind of a a semblance of normal where all of the 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 responsibilities that we all had suddenly crept back in. And and then it was like, wow, I wasn't doing any p blog posts. And I was like, I've got to kind of find a good, happy medium with all of this because, uh, yeah, I think the pandemic gave us a false sense of like what was possible. It definitely did. I, I definitely, I, that's why um, all 90s action uh, all the time like shut down for a little while because like, and uh, then I scaled back New Horror Express back to being fortnightly instead of uh, weekly, uh, because I did I did kind of realize that you know once I I was like uh, back like working full time again and uh, you know everything was opening up again and having a bit more of a social life I was like oh my god I have zero time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like one of those things where it's like. Suddenly, like, you know, like, like, I, I mean, I know, like, in the early stage of the pandemic here, one of the things my wife and I was like, when I never left the apartment, I think the only time I ever left the apartment was that she had some medications that had to be picked up at the, the pharmacy. So those meant so, so like, I would kind of strap up, you know, with like the mask and like the glove, like had like kind of the whole <laughs> the routine that I would go out for those. Mm -hmm. But otherwise, you know, everything was, you know, getting things shipped, you know, all this. Of course, there was no sporting events happening. Um, you know, so that was another piece too, right? Is that uh, there's no 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 sporting, you know, no games to watch or anything like that. Movies had kind of also shut down. I always kind of forget about that too. That like there weren't as many movies being released at that time either. So it was like, yeah, there was like we have time for stuff, and then suddenly everything just or I shouldn't say suddenly. It was kind of more of a gradual thing. But then it was like, oh, now the movie theaters are opened up again, and it was like this sense of like, well, I've got to go to the movie theater because I didn't go. You know, I couldn't exactly. go for this period. Exactly. Yeah, that's, yeah, sporting with, like you said, going out with friends and all that stuff. 
all that stuff that we took for granted that we suddenly lost. And that was like, we felt like we had to make up for lost time. And I think, yeah, the podcasts that we were, were doing were the one, uh, the one casualty of that, I guess, to, to some extent, not a complete, you know, not, not like we, we shut them down completely, but it was like, we, we sort of slowed the process down a bit. For sure. And I think there, there definitely was that time where you felt like there's kind of no new movies coming out. And um, I think like that's actually a big part of uh, how the 90s action podcast came about, because I realized that, uh, you know, early on when things closed down, it was like obviously such a depressing period. And then there was no new movies, really. So I was revisiting old movies and I realized that. Uh, what I wanted was nothing challenging. I just wanted comfort food movies. So I was revisiting all these kind of 90s action films and like 80s stroke 90s like slasher films. Like that's all I wanted to watch. <laughs> right. And they are, they are fantastic comfort food, right? Like when you watch those those 90s actioners, um, I think like, you know, even watching like Batman Returns for, 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 uh, for your pot, for you know, my time when I was on, on the podcast with you, it was like a sense of like, I don't know how to explain it. Like, like I had seen that movie and I thought in my head I knew what that movie was. But then watching it again and being like, wow, now this is this is this was how movies were made. This is how blockbusters were made in the early 90s. And it's not really like it's, they're made now. Um, like you said, there's a comfort food aspect to it of like, man, you know, I just kind of like to have that kind of that home cooking. Um, and, and I think, like you said, during the pandemic, we were all looking for things that could kind of give us that comfort. Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> Yeah. And and I mean, it's it's kind of one of those things. I think what's interesting now, I think, kind of almost like sort of segueing a little bit, um, you know, right now, as we're doing this podcast, um, I think for the most part, teams have gone through the second match of the World Cup. So we're kind of in the we're still in the group stage of the World Cup as we're chatting about this. And it's interesting because I, I almost kind of see this playing out with fans of, of football throughout the world that like there's this this sort of disgust of the of the the way it's been handled in Qatar, right? With like the, yeah. the the civil rights abuses, the fact that players can't sort of speak their minds about the games, obviously the the bags of money that were going on and all of that. But then also this sense of like, eh, it's the World Cup. You know, I want to see my players play. And I mean, obviously even the time of year has made it really, really odd. Um, and so there's that almost like that, that sense of it, that this World Cup happening in 2022, it's almost like if FIFA was going to pull this whole Qatar thing, that this was the year to do it. This was the, the World Cup to do it in because there are enough people that are like, I just want my World Cup that are that are sort of ignoring all the other stuff. Yeah, that's true. It is. It's really challenging. It's hard to uh, just enjoy the football um, because obviously there's so many issues. There's issues with how Qatar got the World Cup uh, in terms of like, you know, bribery and corruption. Um, but there's also just, you know, there's the migrant labor rights. You know, so many of the workers died making the stadiums and making the infrastructure around the, the World Cup, not necessarily just the stadiums because they built like kind of basically whole new cities um, for this World Cup. But, you know, it's crazy uh, and then you know there's the women's rights issues the, there's the lbtq uh, uh, plus issues you know there's all these things going on so it and you know the the whole uh, you know the whole controversy with the the one love armband and um, which you know was a bit of a you know, it was it was a very small gesture in the first place. You know, it was it was almost a nothing gesture in the first place. But still, it was at least it was something, and even that was quashed. You know, so 
yeah, there is so much kind of pain and misery and oppression surrounding this World Cup. It is hard just to to enjoy the football. You know, I've been I've been watching highlights and stuff like that, and have enjoyed uh, some of the matches. But like at the same time, it, it is very difficult to just switch your brain off and and just uh, you know enjoy the World Cup. Yeah, because you know, you know, the next one is going to be here in the states. Well, partially in the states, also um, neighboring countries in Canada, Canada and Mexico. And Mexico. obviously, you know, me growing up here in the United States, the United States' record on human rights is not the, the best either. Um, but at the very least, in the U.S., um, you know, couples that are, um, you know. Uh, straight couples that aren't married are still allowed to go out in public in the U.S. Um, yes, you know, we just had a mass shooting at, at, at a gay bar, a gay nightclub here in the United States. And, and I don't think it's the, the, the human cry to sort of protect the LGBTQ plus community isn't as strong as it should be here. But at the very least, it's not illegal to to be gay um, going to those those sporting events. And like, you know, like you said, like, I mean, obviously, the United States has a, a leg up in the sense that there's so many like. 80,000 plus seat stadia here that they don't need to use slave labor to, to build um, new stadia for, for the event. But I think it's still that idea. I mean, even just the, the idea that like of, you know, the U.S.'s human rights abuses, if the German team wanted to wear Black Lives Matter shirts or the One Love, you know, anything like that, the U.S. wouldn't be putting pressure on FIFA to like yellow card them um, or telling the, the stadia um uh, workers that they can't allow people in that have rainbow shirts or things like that. And I think I think that's probably where it's it's like it kind of steps over a different boundary from like, yeah, most countries have their issues with human rights abuses that are bad. And it's sort of like you don't want to point the finger when, you know, you know, you know, ignoring your own country's uh, mm. uh, issues. But I think that's where the Qatar one takes it a step further is, you know, you can't go into the stadium if you're wearing these certain things or just even like the the fact that it's illegal to, to be, you know, um, uh, you know, to identify as LGBTQ plus, that probably like where it takes like, sort of a, a, another step from what other countries in the world are, are especially you know like sort of Western countries. Yeah, I would absolutely agree with that, and it's one of those things that yeah, you've got to be conscious of your own country's pitfalls. And um, you know, I come from Scotland. Obviously, you know, Britain has a terrible record, historical record in terms of imperialism, and even even in, in recent wars and conflicts that have happened in, in recent decades, you know, there's there's been terrible things um, that you can point to and be like, well, well, you're not squeaky clean either. But again, that doesn't stop people from being able to criticise these regimes. And again, you know, if the World Cup was hosted in the UK, the same thing, you know, people wouldn't be pulled out of stadiums or stopped um, for coming into stadiums for having a rainbow flag. Um, people, you know, people would be, uh, you know, there there would be no pressure again, like you said, from from the English FA to the FIFA for, for people wearing, like uh, players wearing armbands or anything like that. Um, so, and, and yeah, and obviously there's, there's lots of stadiums in the UK, so that there'd be no slave labor uh, again. So yeah, yeah, you know, people should be conscious of their own history and their own problems with their own uh, country. But I don't think that uh, should stand in the way of calling out the human rights record, um, of, of other countries, particularly um, a place like uh, Qatar that, that seems uh, so backwards in, in so many kind of uh, regards um, through a kind of Western liberal perspective. Yeah, yeah. And I think, 
I think for, for a lot of people that are, you know, because like for me, I, it's, I don't know if that's the that I, I boycott the world. I'm really watching. I'm kind of doing the same thing as you are. Like I've been kind of just sort of catching highlights or, you know, seeing what people are, are saying about the games. And I have friends that are following it that are in text threads who are like talking about all the different games that are going on. Um, so, you know, I've been still kind of following to that sin. I know um, I have a friend whose son was in some is in this pool where if Argentina wins, um, he'll they'll get um, uh, season tickets to the Cincinnati Football Club uh, in the MLS. Oh wow! <laughs> yeah, so I'm kind of rooting for that. Um, I told him because um, we have a Hard Rock Cafe here in uh, in, in Philadelphia that um, their big menu item is the Lionel Messi burger. Um, so I told him if they do win, if Argentina does win, that I will go to the Hard Rock Cafe and have one of those messy burgers in his honor, um, you know, if, if they make that win. So so there are some of those kind of nicer things that are happening there. And I think I think that's part of it. I think that, that people, you know, kind of that, that are world uh, football fans are kind of looking for maybe, you know, they're, they're sort of putting some of it aside or not even putting it aside, just saying like, okay, I know this is really bad, but, you know, if this is every four years and what I've, you know, what we've been going through in the pandemic over the past um, couple years, like I'm just happy to have have football back. But but I think even even that the time of year that it's happening in, you know, like the the world soccer schedule has always been created to to fit the World Cup in in the summer. Like it's always it's just been designed that way. That it's always been like the United States and I think Russia also does their their league in the winter or sorry they do their league during the summer because it's so cold in the winter and they always yeah. had to take the break for the World Cup. But even that, you can kind of see that, like, you know, for decades, the, the world uh, football schedule has, has evolved to, to work in this way that the club schedule happens during the winter, the World Cup happens in the summer, or the Euro tournament happens in the summer, or, you know, Copa, um, Copa America. And, and even seeing that disruption, that they've gone through this much trouble to fit Qatar in, that they've completely disrupted the, uh, the club schedule, even that, you can see how, how disruptive that is. Yeah, no, absolutely. And um, I do feel very sorry for the players um, because um, there was a massive uh, schedule pileup um, due to the pandemic, which means there, you know, between the kind of uh, 20, you know, 2020, 20, uh, like the between the kind of 2019, 2020, 2020, uh, 21, and the 21, uh, this current kind of well the 21 22 season you know those three seasons in a row were really compressed um because of the disruption of the pandemic and we had like the lockdown football and stuff like that so there's already a massive schedule pileup so there's already been a lot of tired players and a lot of injuries um and then having this um compressing the schedule uh for the 2022 2023 season we've we've had like kind of I think you know, like yeah, we've we've had like four seasons now that of just. Uh, I mean, like, um, there's a lot of tired players. There's there's got to be a lot of tired players. <laughs> yeah, and like we talked about how the EPL they they have to get those Boxing Day fixtures in. So like while the other parts of the world are saying, yeah, we'll take a break, um, or we'll take our break, um, you know, during Christmas like we usually do, the EPL is like, no, no, we got to get back. And and that's an interesting thing too, because I think we've talked about how. You know, in the decades that the EPL, or in the past like decade and a half or so, where the EPL has grown to be the premier uh, football um, league in, in in the world, um, and they've attracted a lot more players from outside of the UK um, or outside of the British Isles region, it is interesting to see like how 
some of these traditions they haven't wavered on. Like they're going to make sure that they have those like, you know, every three or four days, you know, around Christmas time fixtures. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I did, um, you know, kind of talking about the World Cup, um, you know, we've talked a lot about the kind of the, the, the darkness of, of this World Cup and the, the kind of messed upness of this World Cup in in so many regards. But um, I, I did want to bring up uh, just just one fun thing because I it, I did think of you um, when the US played Wales. Now Gareth Bale scored an equaliser um, against the Philadelphia Union in the MLS final, and then he scored an equaliser against the US in the first round of the World Cup. Do you now have like a picture of Gareth Bale on the dartboard? <laughs> Well, well, so the funny thing, right, my first introduction to Gareth Bale, of course, was when he played with Tottenham, and I've always been an Arsenal supporter. So so it was one of those things where, like, when, when Real Madrid finally grabbed Gareth Bale, I thought, okay, this is going to be a nice relief. I didn't realize, of course, that, they were gonna, that Tottenham was going to take the money from Gareth Bale and just get a whole slew of great players on their team and actually be better than Arsenal for a lot of years. But, um, but yeah, so Gareth Bale's one of those ones where it was like, once he moved on to Real Madrid, I was kind of like, Oh, that's a relief. Like we don't have to worry about him anymore. But uh, yeah, the, the goal against Philadelphia and, and the one against the U S it's like, it's, it's, it's interesting thing. I think um, uh, I, I, it was funny when I would always watch uh, the EPL when Gareth Bale was playing there, they would joke about how um, fans of England would complain, you know, why can't we get great players like that? And of course, you know, he played, because he plays for Wales, um, so he's not going to qualify for for England, whereas I think in a lot of other sports, the United Kingdom competes as the United Kingdom, but yeah, he's he's competing strictly for Wales, and so, yeah, he's he's such a great player um, that you you have to, it's almost like I have to respect it, Um, and it's, yeah, the dartboard thing, it's interesting, because I, I, there are a lot of other players maybe that I might hate more, where it's like him, it's like this grudging respect, like I have to, I have to respect what he's doing on the pitch. Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it's it's interesting. And, and it's funny because they, you know, they, they turned around and had trouble with Iran, which I, I have this theory about the Qatar World Cup that countries like Saudi Arabia, which of course Saudi Arabia, as we're talking today, I think they got demolished in their their second game. But they, you know, surprised Argentina. But that some of these countries where there are a lot of restrictions on sort of the way people can live their lives, that going to Qatar, it's actually Qatar is actually a little bit looser in those restrictions than like, say, Saudi Arabia or maybe even Iran. Um, Whereas, you know, for Western people going to those countries, it's like a kind of a shock to the system um, that maybe those countries might have an advantage. But um, I think it'll be interesting to see what happens with uh, the U.S. playing Iran. Um, and by the time this podcast uh, drops, I think that the, the entire World Cup is going to be done. and We're going to know who, who will have won by the time this one goes. But but then That's you're going true. to have that that intra um, uh, United Kingdom battle between Wales and the in and, and the um, and England kind of almost um it's going to be interesting to see like how that one goes because if England wins right, they're they're through. But um, uh, you know, if if Gareth Bale has a you know has a moment of uh, of, of brilliance against the, the UK, which he totally could if the game's close, um, it, it'd be interesting to see what happens there. Yeah, it'd be very. It's it's very interesting. It'd be very interesting to see what happens. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. What one funny anecdote too about the England US game that that happened. Uh, uh, yesterday here in the U.S., or it happened yesterday, um, you know, in, in um, the World Cup. Uh, 
it, you know, it was a nil-nil game, and it was funny. Like you see the 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 people from England, you know, and my 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 timeline who who follow football are angry that the that you know that England couldn't score a goal and beat the United States. Like what's you know like what you know what what have we fought, what have we become that we can't beat the United States in a World Cup game? Whereas like the U.S. fans, a lot of them are not normal football fans, and they're looking at it like. I just spent 90 minutes watching a nil-nil draw. Like, what? What, what was that? Like, uh, where, where are the goals and all of that? And so, it's still funny how 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 football hasn't quite caught on here in the United States to that degree that when uh. the World Cup happens and you get fans that generally aren't used to it, they're just like, yeah, the, the beauty of a nil-nil draw is something that definitely is not. Um, they they still don't have the appreciation for that yet. Well, yeah, I mean, uh, you know, football can be boring. Um, you know, like some nil-nil draws are really fun, and yeah. but a lot of <laughs> some are very, very dreary. Um, and uh, from what I saw on my Twitter feed, um, the US England one was on the drearier side of of the of a nil-nil draw. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It, it 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 is funny. I think. In terms of how football, you know, especially the EPL is growing here in the U.S., it seems like that, you know, for myself, I've become a, I was a fan of, of football when um when the World Cup came here in '94. So I've been sort of a convert for roughly almost almost 20 years now. Um, and so, but I've always been a fan of the four major sports here in America. So you've got American football, baseball, hockey, and and basketball. Those are the four major sports. And I've always been a fan of those sports as well. And one of the interesting things that I've noticed is, is that as this sport has grown here in the United States, a lot of times they're taking people who aren't fans of of the four major sports and turning them into sports fans. That um that people who normally wouldn't watch football, American football, or anything else, those are the ones that they're getting. And so I think it's going to be interesting to see. Um, I think this World Cup normally normally the World Cup is what sort of gets people, you know, sort of gets new converts, but because of where it's happening in the schedule, you've got three of the four major sports happening right now. You've got hockey, basketball, and then of course the NFL um, football is, is you know is huge. So they're not getting as many converts as they normally would get with a World Cup because of the timing. Um, and I don't know if that that played into their sensibilities at all. I mean, obviously when the World Cup happens here, it'll change. But um, but yeah, it's been interesting to see soccer, you know, uh, football or soccer's growth in that that 18 year span since I've been a fan of it here in the U.S. and Sort of, yeah. Sort of seeing that 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 timeline of you know so many people complaining about it being a nil-nil draw um, when you know for the U.S. to get a nil-nil result against England is actually pretty good for the U.S. Um, it it still shows kind of how how far it still has to go. Yeah, absolutely. As a, as a, as a totally solid result. Um, so yeah, uh, it's it's yeah. I mean, I think the thing that surprised me most about the the U.S. team. Um, this time around was uh, when we were playing Wales and I had no idea that uh, George Weah's son, Timothy Weah, uh, played for the US. So that came as a complete <laughs> shock to me. And I was like, oh, wow. OK, cool. <laughs> yeah. And I think part of that, I think, was because his family was like they under the um, the regime, I think, of Charles Taylor. I think his family was attacked uh, in their, their mansion or something like that. I think he had to move out of of Liberia. Um, otherwise, yeah, I think he probably would have, you know, had son probably would have played for, for Liberia, but I think that was, that was part of the issue there. But yeah, George, I mean, you think of him with those, those teams in, in AC Milan and in those years in the nineties and how, how great he was. Yeah, no, absolutely. He was he, at that time, um, back in, back in those days and in the mid nineties, he was, uh, one of the, one of the top players in, in the world. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
Yeah, and, and it is kind of funny because we were, you know, we're talking about that, like that that was a time in, when when Syria was the, you know, Syria maybe La Liga, but really Syria was like the premier league in the world, and and how you know you just get some 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 rich oil money, some some Russian oligarch money into into England, and and suddenly the EPL is now um, you know the premier league where it's you know runs like maybe six or seven teams deep that could you know have you know world class players that are on World Cup teams right now. Yeah, no, I no, no, I absolutely, absolutely. It's it's all it's all very much changed in the last kind of twenty years or so. Yeah, and it, it, and it is, and, and I think in that sense, you know, again with this World Cup, like you said, you know, sort of, you know, and I, I don't know for you where you are, how the the time zones line up. I think for us, they tend to be like afternoon times here in the U.S., but I don't know for you if that's if if it's sort of like um, they're they're a good time to be watching them, or if it's sort of like you've got to sort of check the highlights when you when you wake up or something. Oh no! I just checked the highlights. Uh, New Zealand, the timings are horrible. Um, so the the it's currently um, four games a day, and those four games are at uh, two a.m., five a.m., eight a.m., and eleven p.m. <laughs> yeah, so, so, yeah. So that timings that are so That's why I've just been watching the highlights. <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. I feel like that was the same thing when um, when the World Cup was in Korea and Japan in '02. I think. That was a similar situation for us, where it was like every game was was in the middle of the night. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's it's it's, it's pretty it's pretty tough. So I, I yeah, I don't know if I'll, I'll actually be watching any of the games. Yeah. I think I'll just be watching, uh, just be watching the highlights. <laughs> <laughs> that makes sense. Perfect. Well, well, yeah. Well, that was probably a good time. Maybe we'll we'll segue into uh, the film that we were discussing, which is a uh, command performance. Um, Dolph Lundgren flick from. 2009, um, one that he's directed. And um, yeah, before we get into the film, um, uh, Scott, what, what are your thoughts on kind of Dolph Lundgren overall? Dolph Lundgren overall. Um, so I guess that Dolph was not somebody I was super into as a kid. Um, like there were certain action stuff. I mean, the all nineties action all the time is is part of a podcast network called the Lost of the Last of the Action Heroes Podcast Network. And they cover a whole bunch of action stars, uh, Sly, Arnie, uh, Van Damme, Dolph, uh, uh, Mel Gibson. Um, I think that's it. Uh, yeah, I think. And they've got a Bond podcast as well. Um, so Bond, I was big into Bond as a kid. And then I think like my kind of, I followed most action stars, you know, in terms of like uh, Sly and Bruce Willis and Mel Gibson and all those um, I think like my kind of three, three top three would have been like Arnie, Jackie Chan, and uh, Bruce Lee, who I know only has like five films, but like I watched them quite a lot. Um, so like they they kind of be my and Dolph like kind of flew under the radar for me. I didn't watch a lot of Dolph films growing up, obviously. Um, because I was very much into Van Damme and I watched quite a lot of Stallone films. Um, saw him in Rocky IV, saw him in Universal Soldier. I think uh, the really only two Dolph like solo vehicles that I saw him in was The Punisher, which I wasn't a big fan of. Um, I you know it's a lot of uh, comic book films in the nineties aren't very good. Um, <laughs> And Masters of the Universe, which I did really like as a kid, even though I don't think it's a very good movie, but like I did really like as a kid. Um, but I think like 
it wasn't really Dolph's performance that grabbed me. It was more like Frank Langella as Skeletor. I, I, I was really fun, and I just thought it was a kind of fun, colorful uh, t- type of movie. So I don't know. There was, it's it's interesting to me. Um, I think I'm kind of slowly kind of coming around on Dolph. I didn't I didn't actively avoid Dolph. Um, to to be fair, it's not like um, there's certain action stars that I'm really not a big fan of, like Chuck Norris and and, and things like that. Um, and anybody who's like a kind of uh, who does like kind of kind of you know full serious full kind of gritty uh, action movies, you know, very popular. The kind of even though I like Liam Neeson as a as an actor, I don't particularly like him as an action star kind of thing. Um, so I didn't avoid Dolph like that, and I did enjoy him in in, in some things, but I think because he had that kind of, he just always seemed kind of rough and gritty to me, and it didn't seem to be much kind of uh, kind of charm or fun there. That like he, I wasn't attracted. To him as a screen personality. However, this year, listening to um, the "I Must Break This" podcast, uh, the kind of Dolph Lundgren podcast, it's on the Last Night in Europe Network. I decided I'll go back and I'll, I'll check some of his films out. And I did think um, watching uh, "Showdown in Little Tokyo" and watching uh, "Dark Angel," uh, aka "I Must Come," in, uh, "I Come in Peace." Um, I was like, oh. Maybe I'd be more into Dolph if I had saw those two films as a kid, because they're fun and kind of the type of action movie I kind of tend to respond to. I know that's a very long answer to, to your question. <laughs> no, because you bring up a fantastic point about Showdown in Little Tokyo, because that was the one that I, I mean, I knew of Dolph from Rocky Four. I knew of him as, you know, Masters of the Universe, so I kind of knew who he was, but um, the funny thing is, um, in the in, in in the early '90s, when when Showdown Little Tokyo came out, um, we have um, you know in the United States we have our, our cable systems, and uh, at that time it was easy to buy this box called a Discrambler that would give you all of the pay channels like HBO and all of those things. And I had a friend who had that, and included in that was um was the pay per view. So I don't know I don't know how 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 it worked for for you um uh, in, in the UK where you had um movies you could pay money. You'd call up the cable company, and they, you know, and they would add a charge to your bill to watch a new movie. Um, kind of different from the on-demand system now, but I don't know if they had something similar um, in, in the UK to what we had in the US. Not really. Um, I, I, I don't remember. Like cable wasn't really a big thing. Um, in you know, like, uh, you know, kind of pre before you got things like um, the kind of more on demand services like BT or Virgin or whatever. Um, when I was growing up in the 90s, basically you had two options. Um, you would either have just normal television, which you would have the four channels that became the five channels, um, or you would have Sky, which means you would have to get like a satellite dish installed. Um, so that and then a uh, Sky. If you had Sky, there was like a kind of Sky movies where you would like rent movies through Sky. Um, but that that was basically your options. Um, okay, that makes it. That actually, I think in '97, I did a school trip to England. Um, so, so England in the UK. Oh no, sorry, England in Scotland. Um, uh, like a kind of a school trip in '97, and I think BBC Five was kind of like just sort of becoming a thing maybe then or, or it was um i just remember seeing a lot of advertisements for shows on on bbc5 on like all the benches and everything 
Oh, that was oh in 97, 97, That would have been the launch of Channel Five, which is unrelated to the BBC. Um, oh, okay. It's it's, it's, a, it's a, just a pay channel. Yeah. So oh, you're, okay. you're 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 like, and it launched in ninety seven. So there was um a, basically um up until ninety seven there was four channels um which were BBC One, BBC Two, ITV, Channel Four, and then Channel Five launched in ninety seven. And and then obviously, um, uh, you know, yeah, BBC expanded uh, with other TV channels um, uh, later. Uh, but um, yeah, that was that was like your your five channels. Although at the time when it first launched, there were certain parts in Scotland, including my hometown, that couldn't actually get Channel Five without a Sky Dish. Uh, so so we still had the four channels up until the early two thousands. <laughs> okay, right, so that that explains at least what I was seeing when I was there. That like they yeah. There, so it was, yep. it was Channel Five was kind of being launched, and they were um yep. yeah they were they That's were kind of launched. yeah yeah well yeah here in the U.S. Um, so you know you had like cable. TV that had sort of like I want to say like thirty channels, maybe thirty or forty channels um, in in the nineties, and and you had the ones that you had to pay each month, and so like you had HBO, you know Showtime, Cinemax, those ones, and of course even like ones like the Disney Channel were pay at that time, and even like my dad wanting to watch uh, baseball and hockey, um, there was a sports network um, that those were pay, um, but then if you got this thing called a Discrambler. It, you you didn't have to pay the cable company because what it did is it de de scrambled those channels because that that was the system that they had in place was that the the channels were scrambled if you didn't pay um, and and that de scrambler applied to pay per view and so my friend who I mean we would watch like for example Mike Tyson when he came out of jail he had his his big fight that was like fifty dollars that lasted like two minutes and of course because of the de scrambler we were able to watch it for free at my friend's house. Um, and that was how I first, you know, watched Showdown in Little Tokyo was he had that. That was, you know, again, descrambled. And then it was one of those things where I would rent it at the video store because we, my, my parents didn't do the descrambler. I think they just, there was, there was a certain point where they were just like, you know, we, <laughs> stealing cable, we, we don't necessarily need to do that. Um, that's, uh, you know, um, okay. I, 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 not that my parents did really anything illicit, but that was definitely one where they were like, we're not going to steal cable. Um, <laughs> so I would rent it as, as, a, as a movie. But that was like a big one for me. It was Showdown Little Tokyo, and I think that also colored my my view of of Punisher because um, I saw Punisher after Showdown Little Tokyo and kind of liked it better. Um, and yeah, I always had this 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 thing with that movie, Showdown Little Tokyo. I just always loved that movie. Um, and so then in the two early two thousands, when DVD first started being a thing, I grabbed you know Showdown Little Tokyo and had to show all my friends. You got to see this Showdown Little Tokyo movie. And then one of my friends, I don't know, maybe it was even me, we went to um, this video store in the mall called Suncoast that was selling used DVDs and got this movie uh, in, from 1999 called uh, Bridge of Dragons. It was directed by Isaac Florentine. And we just thought this was like the most amazing thing ever. I mean, he's he's called War Child um, completely unironically. Um, it's just, it's kind of a goofy kind of thing. It takes place in this future that's also part of the past. And um, none of it makes a lot of sense, but it was just a lot of fun. And that just kind of just got us into Dolph. And so that's kind of where the Dolph thing took off. And it was like early 2000s, we just were picking up every Dolph movie we could find. And um, 
the funny thing about this movie that we're going to talk about command performance is that, you know, in this space of us throughout the 2000s being into Dolph and wanting to consume as much Dolph as we could, this was being teased, right? We were seeing trailers for this. And here's this trailer of Dolph with the spiky hair, no shirt on, drumming. Um, and it was like this idea of like, Dolph's drumming? Like, I've got to see this movie. And, um, and uh, even that, like, we don't really have that as much anymore. Like, I don't really have anticipation for Dolph movies. It's more like I go on IMDb. Oh, Dolph has a new movie out. All right, let's see. Is it available yet? No, it's not. Okay, I'll wait till it's available and I'll, I'll rent it. Whereas this was like, oh, it's in our Netflix queues and all of that stuff. And so... Yeah, Dolph had become this kind of thing for us in the 2000s where he was it, – it was all Dolph all the time. And that was kind of where the site and everything took off was me just wanting to talk about more direct-to-video movies that um, we were kind of coming into contact with through Dolph. Uh, so it, it is kind of funny you mentioned about Shona Little Tokyo because that was sort of the genesis of, of the Dolph thing for us. Oh, nice. Nice. That's, that's, that's cool. I, and it's definitely – um, having watched that this year, and also having watched um, I Come in Peace, which uh, I think I might like even better than than, yes. than, than Shodan and Little Tokyo. I mean, they're both they're both quite they're both fun films. They're both fun films. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I did definitely think, oh, if I had seen these aged, you know, like kind of twelve, thirteen, or whatever, like I de- I definitely think I would have uh, got way more into Dolph, uh, searched for more kind of Dolph films and uh, you know, because like I mean, in the early 2000s I was watching a lot of, you know, I watched a number of direct-to-video kind of efforts, you know, because early on, um, even though before I discovered he's one of the world's biggest monsters um, I, like I was into Seagal you know, because I loved Under Siege and you know, from the moment I saw Under Siege and um, you know, same with Van Damme I followed him into the kind of directive video realm, you know, because like he captured my imagination with I think like probably Kickboxer was the first film I saw by him and it still stands as probably my favourite Van Damme film um, so 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 yeah, I, I maybe I, I would have followed Dolph into the uh director video if I, I'd saw those ones uh saw those ones early on. Um because he's pretty charming in, in both of those, even though I would say kind of Brandon Lee does kind of steal show down a little Tokyo. <laughs> Yeah, no, he definitely does. He's definitely more. There's that sense when you watch Showdown Little Hooker with Brandon Lee that it's just like, oh, we, we missed out on so much with him, um, with him dying yeah. so young because he he really does steal the show there. I think you're you're right there because it's it's funny. He's like more larger than life. Dolph's more larger than life in Showdown Little Tokyo, whereas in um, I Come in Peace, you know, they they get someone like a, a Matthias Hughes to play the baddie, who is one of the few actors that you can put out there who's bigger. And probably more athletic than Dolph is. You know, Dolph is like just this, this towering guy who is like, a, you know, a supreme athlete. And it's it's hard to find situations where he would be getting beaten by people. But then when you when you create this Matthias Hughes, who I I, I was reading about Matthias Hughes in uh, uh, Dark Angel. There's stuff that he does, like we've got those big boots on that he's he's wearing to make his character taller. And he's like doing stuff like jumping around and stuff that people were like, I can't believe he's doing this in this movie. So <laughs> it, it, it adds an extra element to that film, I think, that like you said, like when you look at some of those other ones you were talking about, like, like um, I mean, yeah, Master of the Universe, Frank Langella's performance in that is just amazing. And some of the things that he wanted, like he wanted the Skeletor mask to have like a, 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 a sort of a, 
an amount of give in it so that he could give facial expressions and, and that kind of thing. And those little touches that Langella did for that role, uh, you're right. It kind of, whereas Dolphus is kind of this one note, long haired guy with, with no shirt on, who's wielding a sword. Um, whereas I think yeah, you're right. Like in I come in peace, he gets to have a little bit more personality there. He definitely has much more personality in that film. Uh, yeah. I think like, um, yeah, he's just like a kind of standard muscle bound kind of hero. I think like Master Universe is one of one of those films that um I think is really kind of built around the villain, to be honest. And I do quite enjoy uh, films like that. I, I kind of I enjoy the likes of Flash Gordon for the same reason. Um, even though I think Flash Gordon is a better film than Master Universe. Oh, yes. But um but yeah, I mean, like uh, Max von Sydow's performance is 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 so great in, in Flash Gordon, and I think like even though um, the you know the, the the actor who plays Flash Gordon himself is is kind of charming, um, but like I I think that um, yeah it's it's really uh, stolen by Max von Sydow, and then I think Flash Flash Gordon gets the leg up over uh, Master of the Universe because it has like a, a better supporting cast because you have those great performances from like Brian Blessed and Timothy Dalton and stuff like that. Um, but <laughs> anyway, that's 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 another that's another uh, tangent there. Um, I did I did want to say I guess like with the showdown of Tokyo, sometimes you just got to be careful. You know who you who you uh, co-star with, because uh, I did also recently, not that long ago, uh, rewatch Tango and Cash. And as much as I like Stallone, Kurt Russell runs circles around him in that film. <laughs> <laughs> he does, yes, yeah. That's a really great point because you, you you mentioned about Flash Gordon because there was a documentary. I haven't seen it yet, but um, it's on this service called Tubi here in the United States that, that screens movies for free. Um, but there's a documentary where they kind of go back to Sam Jones, you know, however many years after the film and talk to him about it because his career didn't really take off the way he was expecting it to. And I think you can kind of see why when you look at all of those other performances. I mean, yeah, Max von Sydow, I mean, yeah, Timothy Dalton, who, you know, this is before he goes on to have his sort of not as successful as he was hoping for run at, as Bond. But at that time, he's, you know, I, I've seen him in stuff since then, too. And he really has a, a, a charming sense about him that uh, it's it's a shame it didn't work out for him with Bond necessarily. Um, but yeah, it's Sam Jones. He's young in that movie. I mean, there was a, um, he did a, an A-team episode, I think, three or four years after this, uh, after Flash Gordon. So he's, you know, he's young. And I think he was maybe um, out of his, out of his, I don't say out of his league, but with the people that he was co-starring with, they they didn't exactly prop him up as much as they prop themselves up. Maybe if that's the way that they think of it. And uh, yeah, he he you know he, he it's a great movie, but yeah, I don't think it did for his career like he was hoping it would because of so many of these other names in the film that that that, that stood out. Yeah, no, absolutely not, and it's not surprising. I, I think like you know because it's just. He's in amongst all these things that are kind of outshining him, uh, whether it be like Brian Blessed or Timothy Dalton or Max von Sydow or the production design or the Queen soundtrack. You know, these are the things you remember <laughs> <Yeah>. from Blessed. <laughs> you know, like, uh, um, so I just, it's just one of those, yeah, it's just one of those kind of un unfortunate things. It's not a terrible performance. It's just, it's just like he's being outshone by a bunch of other elements. Yeah. Yeah. It, it was funny if you, when you, when you juxtapose it with like Schwarzenegger and Conan, where, 
there's that that possibility it could have been the same thing for him, but yet he's able to shine, um, you know, despite you know a great batty performance by James Earl Jones and and some of the other stuff that's in there. And you know, I think th there's that kind of that sense of wanting that sword and sandal movie or like the big beefy hero that it doesn't matter if they don't they don't have any personality, and you can have the the baddies and and the co-stars create the personality for them. Um, but there is something I think for the poor star that's in the place there that if they don't have the personality, they don't get like kind of the the love for the movie that 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 they were hoping for. Yeah, I think like that that's interesting as well. You know, if you compare like uh, Masters of the Universe with the likes of Conan, I, I, it's I think that obviously once you, we, we get here you know once we get to to like this sort of film like command performance and even once we get to like showdown in little tokyo um there is a slight there's a bit more looseness to um mm. to uh, Dolph's performance whereas there is a kind of um a kind of slightly mechanicalness to his performance in something like uh, master of the universe and i think that schwarzenegger still pops in conan even though you know, it's uh, he could be outshone by the brilliant Basil Polidiris score and the great James Earl Jones villain performance and all that kind of stuff. Because he does, there is like a kind of physical charisma that he has. And also there's just like fun moments that he has that are just kind of absurd, like the bit where he like punches a camel and stuff like that. <laughs> they, they just stand out, they make it memorable. They, they just give him this kind of peppering of, of personality that's just beyond the kind of uh, one note kind of muscle guy. Yeah, yeah exactly. And I think like you're, you're right about Dolph, like, cause I think, you know, Dolph comes into the, the the world of acting, you know, partly he, he wasn't planning on it, right? He was planning to be uh, a master's uh, chemical engineering student at MIT in the United States. And then he, you know, hooks up with uh, um, Grace Jones and she gets him into uh, View to a Kill, which then gets him into Rocky and Masters of the Universe. And I think part of it is, I think, because he... He didn't think he was going to have a career in 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 acting. You know, he was just doing this stuff to have fun. He probably didn't have as much input either. He probably was kind of just going along for the ride a bit and saying like, okay, if this is what you want to do, yeah, this is fine. I'm I'm good with this kind of thing. And and so he ends up playing these sort of one notes. Um, that yeah, like by the time like you said, like we get into these later films or like like you said here with the command performance where, um. He's almost sort of taking a little bit more charge of his career. Like he knows, like, okay, I'm I'm an actor now. I'm not going to be a chemical engineer or any of these other things. And so I want my personality to show in in some of this stuff a little bit more. And uh, but it yeah, those early films they were so big, right? I mean, they're blockbusters. You know, a Bond movie, Rocky movie, and then you know the biggest toy line at the time uh, for his first three movies. That's a huge, huge thing for him. But it, none of them really show his personality the way that the, the later films of his does. Yeah. And from the kind of few films that I've seen, it seems like the likes of Showdown in Little Tokyo and um, I Come in Peace, which I think I'm right in saying are both 91, are kind of like the kind of first films that you're starting to see, like his personality. Like, you know, because one of the, the scenes that entertained me the most in... Uh, Dolph Lundgren in Showdown in Little Tokyo, I mean, is when Dolph is in like that kind of um, opening scene um, where you kind of first meet his character 
Um, and he's like, hoodlums like attack him, and he's like, hey guys, I've not had breakfast. You know, I'm real grumpy when I've not had breakfast. You know, I can't remember the exact line, but like, and just from that initial kind of, I was like. I'm going to like this film. I'm going to like this performance. Like, I just knew it, you know? Like, yeah, that <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And we never really get that from his his first three movies. Um, and, I mean, and granted, like, The Punisher was also, like, a really dark one. I mean, I think Dark Angel, like you said, Dark Angel and Showdown, um, there's one sandwiched in there, cover-up, which is also a bit of a rough sit, if you've ever. Uh, okay. it, it was one he also did with Louis Gossett Jr., Um but um, but yeah, I think when he starts to kind of get his 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 own his personality in these movies more, um, and and I think you know as we get into to command performance, it's one of the films that he's directed, and I think that's another piece of it for him is that he goes through a period in the in the two thousands where, um, I say probably like kind of the late nineties into the two thousands where. You know, the movies are not the best. Um, for example, he does a movie called Agent Red that uh, is passed with a couple directors. And um, a huge chunk of the beginning of Agent Red is stolen from another movie he did called Stormcatcher. Um, and I think he's sort of seeing these kinds of things. He does a movie called Detention with, um, uh, I think it's uh, Philip J. Roth. Is that, it was, I mean, it's, you know, kind of a, a bigger name director. Um, Sydney Fury, no, Sydney Fury. So even even bigger who um, uh, I believe, right, he did the the Superman movie, um, yeah, Superman 4. So, you know, he's thinking he's going to be doing this great, this this fun movie, Detention. Turns out Detention is, I mean, it's just a, a bad, you know, diehard in a school, which has like all kinds of obnoxious scenes and stuff like that. And so I think starting there in the late, in the mid 2000s, he starts to take a little bit more control and starts directing his own movies. And I think that's part of where we get command performance here as, as a movie that he, um, he's one that he directed. And I think he, he wanted to have a little bit more control over how he was. You know, we could talk about a little bit of how well that comes off because it seems like, for one thing, everybody, uh, every female in the in the movie thinks he's hot, which uh, is is an interesting uh, thing to do when you're the director and you're the stars. Have every woman tell you how hot you are in every scene, but um, but beyond that, um, I think it it ends up being a little bit more of a fun movie than some of those kind of earlier two thousands, late ninety ones that he did. Yeah, it is quite it is quite a fun movie. Yes, um, that is quite fun. Like. So we have like these opening kind of um, 10, 15 minutes where we're kind of like setting, yeah, maybe even longer than that. We're kind of setting things up and um, we're kind of prepping before the action. You know, we're kind of establishing that Dolph is like a rock drummer and um, they're at this concert that's going to be for the Russian president and, and his daughters and has got their their daughter's like favorite pop star um but uh so we're kind of seen backstage at the, at the gig kind of thing and it's yeah it's really strange uh we have like several scenes of this pop star called venus who's just like perving over dolph like all the time while they're rehearsing um and then like quite when he comes like backstage you know trying to hit on him and all this kind of stuff and then like even uh even the the news reporter as well the re- news reporter is reporting for russia now and um, she's like oh who's this handsome fellow let's go to talk to him kind of thing and it's just like really kind of weird and like i think we should probably mention that dolph was like 52 at the time um <laughs> the the actress who plays uh, venus would have been like 27 at the time um i think the reporter would have been again probably in her late 20s as well you know like so yeah it all just comes off a little weird <laughs> yes, right exactly it, it's an interesting thing because it's 
one of the interesting things I think with a lot of these name stars, um, and this is something that Dolph has finally started to transition out of now, but previous to this, there was still this, this idea of them playing somebody that was younger than they were and getting the younger girl in, in, in every film. Um, you know, Seagal still does that a lot, which is just, you know, it just doesn't look good. Um, Van Damme, I, I've seen movies where Van Damme, and he was born in like, what, I think 1960, 61, he'll play characters that were born in the mid-70s. Um, and we're just, we're just buying the fact that he was born in the, in the early mid-70s or, you know, late 60s or whatever. Um, but, um, you know, it's interesting because I saw there's a film that Mark DeCascos did called One Night in Bangkok. Um, not, not anywhere related to the Murray Head song at all. But, um, uh, but he does this movie, One Night in Bangkok, where he actually plays somebody 10 years older than himself. And oh, that's unusual. Yeah, again, yeah, you don't usually see that kind of thing, and it does feel like Dolph has started to now in the in the late 2010s into the early 2020s to sort of embrace this. But you know, even after this film, he does a movie, um, he does a a direct-to-video sequel to um, Kindergarten Cop, uh, Kindergarten Cop Two in 2016, where he's 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 with um, a woman who's even younger than than this actress who's playing the um the. The, the star in this movie, he's, he's even younger than her. She's like born in like the late 80s, I think. And they hook up at the end of the movie. And it seems to be, and, and of course, this is also Dolph seven years older as well at that point. Um, <laughs> and so there's still that vibe of that kind of thing in these movies. Um, I guess the one difference between Kindergarten Cop 2 and this one is that Dolph just did Kindergarten Cop 2. He wasn't really part of like the production or directing it or any, anything like that. But yeah, there's that that vibe in these movies where these action heroes who are older, um, and and yeah, maybe in real life he probably could necessarily get the you know a younger woman like that, but it does seem kind of smarmy when it happens constantly in the in the film, and it is the fact that Dolph did. I think when I saw this in '09, I was just so enamored with Dolph that I it's not even that I let it go. I was just kind of like, of course, all these women are going to think Dolph's great. You know, he's he's Dolph. Um, whereas now I'm kind of like, eh, you know, like Dolph, you you, you could have toned it down a bit. I think it's not necessarily like obviously you know Dolph is a man who uh, works out a lot. He's in good yes. shape. Um, he doesn't necessarily look like young mm. for his age because he's got a kind of weather-worn kind of face, which makes him look <laughs> his age. You know, just just yeah. his age. It doesn't look it doesn't look really old for his age either. He just looks his age. Um, but it's kind of it's the way it happens as well. Um, it's it's not just that like. Um, like even if you know the, the same age, everything's the same, and they like um, they meet backstage and they start and like Dolph maybe starts flirting a bit, and then you know, and then you know the 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 pop star kind of responds and kind of you know is is flirty back or whatever. Even if something like that had happened. I kind of, I guess I kind of would have been like, that's a bit weird because it's, you know, such an age difference. But at the same time, I would have been like, okay, maybe, you know, because he's a guy works out and like he's being flirty and like, and she kind of responds because she thinks, oh, wow, this guy's kind of charming, you know? But it's so that I could have maybe given a pass to, but it's the fact that, that they're like just so over the top on site not having not met him at all just just seeing the image of him just being like oh wow you know like <laughs> just like leg trembling excitement you know like I, and i was like it seems a bit over the top Dolph. come on 
Right. It's the kind of thing that would be played for laughs in like a, a romp comedy in the 80s where you have that one yeah. character that's like a male character that all the women throw themselves at. But it's done yeah. for laughs when they do it. Like, you know, this guy just, oh, he's just got away with women and they all just love him. And it's completely not serious. Whereas here, there was no irony. At least if there was irony, it wasn't apparent, I guess, is maybe the best way to think of it. No, it wasn't. It wasn't front and center. I mean, these <laughs> these these women, uh, these women, the news reporter <laughs> and the pop star, basically almost faint with excitement because um, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> they're that into Dolph. Uh, and, you know, so it is played pretty hilariously. But yeah, it seems completely unironic, which makes it kind of even more hilarious. Exactly. Yeah. Now, just to give, I'll give a, a kind of a brief synopsis of the film. It's essentially Die Hard in a concert, but um, the idea is that. Um, the uh, Christo Shapov plays the president of Russia, which he's, uh, I guess in 09, we didn't know to what extent Putin, how, how bad Putin was. I think there was some things floating around about how bad he was in Russia, um, but it wasn't quite as front and center as it is now. And so the idea that Russia could, or maybe, maybe there was a message to be had there that they, you know, Russia could potentially have a benevolent president if if he was allowed. And this is what it would look like if he had a benevolent president, because this president is not Putin. This is a, a nice guy with two daughters who uh, wants to have this pop star played by Melissa Molinaro, who um, I, uh, she was on a, a show called Making the Band here in the United States, which was um, uh, Diddy, um, Sean P. Diddy Combs. Um, you know, I, I guess mm-hmm. I think he's just Diddy now. Um, he was trying to put together a girl group. And so he had a bunch of women, a bunch of young women uh, living in a, a, an apartment uh, in in New York City. And they were filming it. And they, you know, as, as the show would go on, uh, women would be eliminated. I don't remember how far she got in it because honestly, I don't remember her as much. So I don't think she made it too far um, on, on that one. But She's playing the pop star in this, uh, known as Venus, and um, the president's kids uh, are, are fans of Venus, so they want to see her perform. And then, of course, we've got Dolph, who's a drummer for the opening act, which is more of a rock act. Um, and then there's a baddie who saw his father kill himself during, I guess it was the end of the Soviet Union, the fall of the Soviet Union, and um, the president, when he was younger, I guess gave papers to this guy. I guess to get him arrested or something, and and he killed himself. Yeah, it was so an arrest guy, warrant. He, the, the the now president uh, it was uh, a kind of a young judge, like a prosecutor, um, and and he gave him it was like handing him an arrest warrant. Yeah, that makes and so so then this guy wants to take him hostage for revenge, and so they end up taking over the entire concert. And then Dolph, of course, is our fly in the ointment guy. Um, we don't really know that he's like special forces or anything, right? They don't really say that. He's just like a, a drummer who I guess has a past in the United States that he's running from, and that's why he's living in Russia. Right, so, yeah, so we're going to take a, a quick break here. Um, so we'll stop here, and then we'll be back in just a minute. Hey, everyone. We'll get back to the podcast in a second. But first, I have a new novel out, Holtman Arms. It follows Colvin Hall an aspiring writer who decides to write a romance novel on a whim, sends it to a publisher, and it becomes a huge success. The only problem is, no one knows it's him because he writes under the pen name Mary Ballantyne. With all of the money and none of the fame, Colvin longs for the world to recognize his accomplishments. When he gets an opportunity to write a freelance article on a washed-up 90s pop star looking for a comeback, that recognition starts to come, but is it all he hoped for? It doesn't matter, because he's getting it whether he likes it or not. Holtman Arms is the second in my author's cycle after A Girl and a Gun, and like that previous novel, it explores themes of success and accomplishment in the 21st century. 
You can buy it now through Amazon in paperback or on Kindle. The link is in the podcast description. As always, thanks for your support. All right, and we are back. So, so yeah, so Scott, I guess, you know, sort of looking at the synopsis where we essentially have Die Hard in a concert venue, uh, what did you think of Command Performance? Overall, I, I really, uh, overall, I thought it was pretty fun. Um, I, I thought it was, uh, for the most part, there, there's certain, I mean, we talked of one kind of moment of silliness that really worked for me, um, but, uh, you know, with the women, but uh Overall, I thought I thought it was a, a kind of a, a fun outing. I did, um, you know, when you're talking about the synopsis there, one of the things I was thinking about was, did I like that, you know, it was a bit different where Dolph um, just has a past as, in a biker gang and that's how he knows how to fight and stuff? Like, because obviously it's always kind of silly, like the kind of classic Steven Seagal thing of like, you know, he's whatever, he's a chef, but actually he's, you know, he's got a secret pass as a, a special services guy or like a CIA guy or like, that's like the typical like Seagal type thing. And then I was like, oh, well, so they didn't go that route, um, which is a kind of silly in itself, the, the typical Seagal thing. But then this is also silly. So I was like, hmm, what flavor of silly do I prefer? <laughs> Yeah, it, it, it is interesting, like, this idea that, like, cause, I, mean, I know um, there was a, a, a book that um, Hunter S. Thompson wrote about the Hell's Angels um, and sort of, like, what, what oh, it was yeah. like living. Yeah, and, and it gives you a sense of, like, their level of, of know-how when it comes to fighting and that kind of stuff. So I guess, you know, it would work there. But you're right. It's like um, the, the Seagal one's ridiculous, right? It's always he was former CIA, DEA, whatever thing. And he just, you know, he's always got to get pulled out of retirement, right? There's like some character actor that shows up at some CD bar and he's like, no, man, I don't want to come out of retirement. If I'm coming out of retirement, I want my whole crew. I want this, you know, and he's like giving him the whole spiel and everything. And I guess like not having that here is, is, a, is a change of pace. But by yeah. the same token, it's like, you know, some of the stuff that he does in this feels like it's like a level of understanding of, of, of battle areas that might be beyond just being in a biker gang that was my thinking as well because like you know you know with biker gangs i don't know if there's like outlaw biker gangs you know who are maybe um into kind of gangland type stuff you know running drugs or whatever because it is mentioned that his brother's killed by some colombians so i i imagine we're supposed to infer from that as like a drug deal gone wrong or something like that um but again i mean they're, they're mostly kind of bar brawler types you know they're, they're, like they're tough and stuff but you know and they know how to you know deal with themselves in the fight but they don't necessarily they're not necessarily known for their martial arts progress shall we say <laughs> Well, that and even just like sort of knowing like, OK, I'm I'm in an environment where I need to be like scouting out here. or I need to be in this. Yeah, you know, the kind of the kind of uh, tactical military. No, yeah. Nice. And, and the kind of is is ease with uh, even though it's a big plot point that he doesn't like uh, guns and, the, right. you know, because of his brother's death and stuff like that. And then he hunted down the, the people who killed his brother and then he swore off guns after that. That's the that's kind of that's the kind of thing. So he, he swears off guns for, I don't know, part of this movie until he's like, oh, I've just seen this table of guns. Let's have a tooling up montage, which is just 
stupid but fun you know like i enjoyed it i was like i was like i was like yeah okay he doesn't care about the gun thing now all right fine we'll go with it it's we're, we're heading into the third act <laughs> exactly. exactly but yeah no so like there is that kind of tactical know-how um that that you know you would expect to come from military experience you wouldn't expect to come from being in an outlaw biker gang yeah yeah well yeah because one of the things that hunter s thompson talked about is that like you know, the bikers would have like a knowledge of martial arts in a way that like the average person might not like, you know, techniques and, and sort of you know deadly techniques that, you know, that they would pick up that, you know, that the average person might not understand. But generally the way bikers fight is that like if you mess with one of them, the whole crew just stomps on you. And, you know, it's yeah, like, for sure. uh, what, what was it? Um, The uh, Give Me Shelter movie uh, where there's the the concert at Altamont where you've got the Rolling Stones performing and the people there thought it was a good idea to have the Hells Angels be security at the concert. And, uh, you know, at one point they stomped or they, they, um, they, they gave a, a concussion to, uh, I think the guitarist of Jefferson airplane, um, mm -hmm. cause he was trying to get them to back off of somebody. They just whacked him. It's, you know, there, there's no sort of like off button for them. And, you know, and that's kind of what, what it is. And I think that's very different from being like a lone, you know, like, Bikers aren't really known for being like kind of the Spartan sort of, you know, spend, send one of your, your best um, to, to, you know, protect the village or to, to protect the city or something like that kind of vibe that we get here from Dolph where he's a one man army kind of person. Um, that's a little bit different here. Um, but, you know, it, it also I think it kind of belies this rule because we're the number one rule of direct to video films is that like especially direct to video action movies. If it's fun, we forgive a lot of stuff and we kind of just have fun with it more than, you know, that it ruins the movie. And I think that's the one thing that happens here, right, is that because this movie is fun, we kind of have fun with the fact that he's a biker who who has like tactical know-how, a special forces tactical know-how than we do if, like, if it wasn't fun, if it was boring or something. Yeah, and I, yeah, absolutely. But like also it being fun lets it off the hook on a lot of things. It's like, um, and and this is not the same for everybody. I have like a very uh, particular relationship with with action movies and very particular things I I I like. So this won't be the same for everybody. But for me, it's kind of the same thing as like those kind of quasi serious kind of taken style films, right? Because like it's kind of quasi serious some of the time. Then I take it a little bit more seriously you know I, I i try and you know i kind of take films on whatever terms they're kind of giving me or or what i think they're giving me so like in those films i'll hammer them more for kind of plot inconsistencies character inconsistencies than films like this where i'm just like ah well it's just you know it's all it's all fun you know like you know so <laughs> a lot of the a lot of the things i, I just kind of like letting them off the hook for <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if, if Liam Neeson was playing the drums and taken, I think there are a lot of those aspects of that movie that that we would we'd definitely forgive it. And I mean, the other thing I think, too, with Dolph is that because he does his own stunts for the most part, at least the martial arts scenes, he does those himself. Um, yeah. You know, and I mean, you can see kind of where age is creeping up in some of the way he's able to kick in certain parts where he it doesn't look as good as it did in the past. But 
that also sort of lends a little bit more fun to it than it is when it's like Liam Neeson and the film is just completely like chopped up and kind of put through a blender almost and like spit out in these sort of split second bursts. So we don't see the fact that Liam Neeson looks absolutely horrible um, doing these, these martial arts scenes. Um, I think maybe our, our brain is able to, to manage it, or at least for me, my brain's able to manage a little bit better when it's not such like quick, um, you know, sort of edits like that. Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm not a big fan of the kind of kind of quick editing style um, like that. Yeah, I think you can get away with it um, sometimes, but I think you have to be a very uh, skilled director. You know, it's just, it's the kind of same thing with, and we get a bit of it here. It's the same thing with like shaky cam. Shaky cam is most of the time, ninety percent of the time, annoying or even 99% of the time annoying. Uh, but there is certain examples that you can point to, something like the Bourne Ultimatum or something like that, where you're like, oh, no, it was effectively employed here. Or even even things like um, uh, like Black Hawk Down kind of thing, um, where you're like, oh, okay, kind of get away with it. Um, but I think you need to be a very skilled director like a Paul Greengrass or, or a Ridley Scott or something like that to, to kind of get away with it. Um, so I think one of the kind of uh, kind of minor criticisms I, I would have of this film is yeah some some of the some of the shaky cam and some of the camera work is not is not the best and is it can be a bit a little bit distracting in some of the gun battles that happen. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's another area too with Dolph as a director where I, you you don't know how it all works after the fact where. I think he's he's kind of also leaning on his cinematographer and Mark Wind, but then I think there's sure. a point where the film is edited in the end, and um, the producers get a hold of it and they start adding pieces in, or it's like one of those things where it's like uh, we were rushing to get the film done and we didn't shoot these things as well as we would have liked, so let's do a little shaky cam with the uh, with it, and it, it, it's it's an interesting thing I think with with action versus like for example like direct to video horror or direct to video sci fi where um, there's an expectation of a certain level of quality from, from you know, direct video, uh, you know, unless it's like a horror comedy, um, you know, people are looking at saying like, I, I, you know, I want good special effects. I want good makeup effects, all of that. Whereas with action movies, there is a sense of like, okay, if the movie's fun, I'll, I'll you know, I'm not, I'm not expecting a lot when I go into a direct video action movie. And it's like, if it just mm -hmm. keeps me entertained, I'll take it. Um, which is a unique, I think it's a very unique perspective with movies to, to look at it. Like, um, the movie's almost going into it with a sense of like, I don't have a lot that I need to live up to the way like, like, you know, a horror movie, if a horror movie's bad, if it's direct to video, the, the horror community will get on it, I think a little bit more than, than an action movie. If the action movie is, it has some sort of fun element to it. I think so. I, I think like, yeah, the horror community, um, because <sighs> the horror kind of is weird. It's kind of separate, um, from, most genres because it has its own ecosystem uh, in a way that most genres don't. So horror has its own film festivals. It has uh, a lot of its own uh, review sites, a number of major review sites like Dread Central, Bloody Disgusting, The Daily Dead, things like that, that, that horror fans will go to above your normal review sites, um, you know, being... Uh, whether that's you know things like in the UK, things like Empire, or things like IndieWire, things like AV Club, you know, if, uh, you know whatever whatever it is, 
um, these kind of more major outlets or, or more major reviews uh, websites. Um, so, like, yeah, kind of horror lived in its own ecosystem. And I, I also think that generally, um, with some exceptions, you know, because, like, you know, there's people like us talking about action movies and there's people who are, are kind of nerdy about action movies. But I think for the most part, when it comes to DTV action, from my perspective, look, looking at them, it seems like most of them are made by people doing a job. Um, yeah. Whereas with a lot of DTV horror, it is often there, there's a, they're often being made also, n not just for horror nerds, but by horror nerds, and particularly in terms of the special effects people and the kind of gore effects people and stuff like that, often they are hardened horror fans themselves. Um, so I guess that gives a little bit of a different ethos as well of like, you know, and it's, it, you know, it's, it's not necessarily, I'm not necessarily criticizing, you know, people, you know, are out there, they're, they're making films, they're, they're, they're doing a job and, you know, and, and sometimes they're doing a, a very good job and there's, there's nothing wrong about that. But I, I just do, do think there is a little bit of a different, different ethos in terms of that, like that, like wanting to be like. Uh, that kind of fanboy enthusiasm. And I think particularly with horror, particularly with people who are in that kind of doing the gore effects, doing the special effects, there is that kind of fan-like enthusiasm of this will look so cool on screen that maybe you don't get when uh, making a lot of these DTV action films. Yeah, no, that's a really great point because, you know, when you look at like, the, you know, sort of the, the, the more successful films that have come out recently, um, you think of like Jesse B. Johnson as a um, as a director who, you know, he makes Avengement with uh, with Scott Adkins. And that's almost like a movie that's kind of ex exactly what you're describing in terms of like guys that are kind of nerdy. You know, that like like Jesse B. Johnson and, and Scott Adkins are nerdy about action movies and they make mm -hmm. a movie that isn't like you said, like it's not in this mindset of like doing a job necessarily. And I mean, there's a lot of things about Avengement that that you know, a, a, you're, you're, I guess I don't want to say like your, your average distributor would look at and say, I'm not touching this. Um, you know, Scott Atkins with not only an English accent, but it's like a thick English accent in the sense it's like a lot of slang terms that aren't, you know, well known in the United States. Um, sure. You know, yeah, yeah. The, the, the movie itself is very, very English and or very British in that sense that like, a lot of times movies, when they make movies for, you know, there's an idea of like, well, we're going to put this in the United States. It's got to be, you know, it's got to be made for U.S. audiences. And this movie is not made, you know, movie's not made like that at all. But yet, because it's it's made with that kind of love of action, it's like another level. And that's probably maybe part why, like, you know, for example, like, you know, Seagal's movies, you know, he gets this director, Keone Waxman, who just, I always joke that he's a Seagal whisperer because it's like he's brought in to mitigate all of the things that Seagal <laughs> doesn't want to do, right? Like, I won't yeah, do my yeah. reverse shots. I'm not doing my ADR. You know, I'm not going to be in all of these scenes. I pretty much want to sit for most of the movie. So, you know, it's like, like Keone Waxman's like, okay, well, let me get another actor like Byron Mann to come in and do all the, the heavy lifting in this film. And I'll just intersperse the, you know, it, like you said, it's like a job for him. And then he wants to go do his own movies if he can after the fact of, yeah, it's a good point because that's a lot of times with action movies, it's sort of a line producer who comes in and says, okay, who am I going to get to make this movie? Um, 
Benjamin Sachs, actually, um, he did an interview with Sean Malloy on I Must Break This Podcast because um, he had produced some of Dolph's movies, but he talked a lot about working on those Seagal movies. Um, and and it, he gave some really good insight into that that is kind of saying exactly what you're saying about it. Like, this is a job, right? And And I think you're right that, like, as somebody who's watching the movie, a lot of these have almost like an assembly line quality to them. And anytime you can get a movie like this one here, that that even with the assembly line quality, it, it's a fun movie. You almost have to sort of like, you know, like, like got to grab onto it, you know, just sort of take it and, 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 and appreciate it for as much as you can because of that. And uh, it, it is an interesting difference. And, and even like you talk about with the ecosystem and part of the reason why my site is more action oriented is because the horror movies that I would review, they would be buried in that ecosystem and nobody would really see them. Whereas the action ones, I'd be like one of maybe 10 people reviewing the movie and, and people would come to me through that. And so, yeah, it, it is interesting, I think, with these movies where when you get that assembly line vibe to them, if if there's anything to them that you can latch onto that makes them fun, it is a different thing versus like, like horror movies, like you said, where it's like uh, somebody who really appreciates the genre is making that film. Yeah, absolutely. And I do think, like, you know, cutting back to Command Performance, one of the things that makes Command Performance an enjoyable movie, I think, is even though the, you know, the thing with the women at the start is kind of ridiculous, there is a little bit of kind of like fanboy enthusiasm in this movie, I think, from Dolph. Yes. Because, like, like this movie is is uh, it's a story by Dolph. It's directed by Dolph. It's the lead star Dolph, and like Dolph in this movie is essentially leading a kind of teen boy fantasy of being like, what am I going to be in this movie? I'm going to be a biker badass. I'm going to be a rock star because I know I read that he plays drums himself. So like I'm going to be a rock star. Um, all the women in the movie are going to love me. I'm going to kick ass. I'm going to save the day. And it's like, sure, sure, Dolph, you know, you, you do, you, you know, like, you know, like if you have the, if you have the opportunity to kind of live out your dreams and be like, you know, whatever, whatever you dreamt of as, as like, as like a teenager or whatever, you know, why not? If, if somebody's willing to give you the money, you know, I dreamed of being like a, a like a metal star as, 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 you know, as, as a kid, you know, like I watched a lot of action movies. I was, you know, into martial arts as a kid. If I could be like a, you know, a metal guitarist stroke martial arts badass and somebody would be willing to give me millions of dollars to make the metal star martial arts badass Scott movie, I'd be like, sure, why not? <laughs> right, exactly. And and it's interesting because he directs this movie and then he does um, I think he does one more after this, that the killing machine, which actually um, Icarus, a.k.a. the killing machine. I believe he wasn't supposed to direct that one. I believe that was supposed to be one that someone else was supposed to direct. And then he ended up taking it over. I, I don't remember exactly what happened there. Um, but so this command performance is actually like one of the last ones that he directs for a while. Um, now he started to get back into directing more. Um, but there was a sense, I think, and Sean Malloy, I think, had talked about this as well, that he had, had gotten to this point where he was getting these roles that he didn't appreciate or didn't like. And it's almost like he did the directing piece to kind of give himself the roles that he wanted again, um, that he wanted, uh, you know, he wanted to be able to do these movies. And it isn't kind of interesting, like, 
that you know he he gets away from it. I think because I I think just in his personal life, I think he um, he. I think he gets a uh, divorce from his wife, um, and um, I think he needed money at at that point and started just doing a bunch of stuff in the 2010s that just like, you know, Mm -hmm. bang them out kind of, you know, quick things. So it's almost like this is like a little taste of like the last gasp of Dolph for a while um, that is kind of this fun Dolph. And then you get into this period of just like these these movies in the 2010s that aren't that great um, that he does uh, until he kind of gets big screen pictures again where he's you know doing uh, Aquaman he's doing the, the the Creed movie and all of that but this is kind of like a, a almost like a an end of a, of, a, of a, an interesting era for him or interesting period in his career um, that we get this sort of like this last gasp where like you said he kind of just has fun and and gets to play out this sort of dream character that he he creates yeah, and he he is having a lot of fun in this movie. Um, you can you can tell from his performance. I mean, like, uh, there is there is some performance. You know, the performances aren't terrible uh, across the board, but they're kind of they're a bit of a mixed bag. Uh, I would I would say, but you know, Dolph, uh, really. Every time he's on screen, he really lights up the screen, and you just you can just tell how much uh, fun he's having uh, playing this character, the 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 drummer uh, Joe. Uh, apparently, everybody else introduces their full name, but he always right. just calls himself Joe. And I was like, does he not have a surname? Like, is it is it one of those like Madonna style things that he just <laughs> styles himself as Joe? You know, like, but uh, yeah. <laughs> Right, because I guess the idea is he's on the run for the law in the U.S., but yeah, like, yeah. wouldn't you have a fake last name then, or something? Like, wouldn't you have something that yeah, that you you would you would need there? But yeah, it's it's a fascinating thing that, and and it's also interesting that he's this film takes place in Russia, but he's not Russian, I don't think. Um, which he almost always plays Russians when he's in Russia, so that that was another departure here. That's true. No, he seems to be an American. He's called an American. It, it, yeah. um, he's referred to as being an American um, uh, a couple of times. Uh, so yeah, that, that is a bit of a a bit of a departure because, I, like you say, he's still often uh, played uh, Russians throughout his career. But there doesn't, you know, it's not like uh, I, I don't know. Like of the main cast, uh, nobody's really Russian um, right. because, like the. Um, the main villain, Oleg, uh, is played by uh, the late Dave Lagano, who is British. Um, and then, like the president, Haristo Sh- Shipoff, uh, he's Bulgarian. And his uh, his friend, uh, Mikhail, who, who becomes like his kind of his kind of psychic, uh, Zachary Barharov, um, he's also Bulgarian. Um, yeah, so like, and, and most of the. And then, like his friend James Chalk, he's in it. He's also British. Uh, like the reporter lady, um, Alexi, she's like uh, the actress is like Israeli. Um, and even like the 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 female major, who's like a part of the tactical unit, she's Polish. So like, there's no, there's no right. not, not really found any Russians in the cast. <laughs> right, because I think it's it's the movie is shot in Bulgaria, which at that right, time. Yes. That was a common thing. So what's interesting when it comes to these movies is in the um, in the 2000s, right, you get Romania, Bulgaria, those are places. I mean, you know, obviously Seagal did tons of movies there, but that was a, a place where movies were shot. And then the economy falls apart. You know, you have the sort of the, 
global sort of recession that happens there. Um, but in the United States, that hits a few states particularly hard. Um, Michigan is one that, that really suffers. Um, uh, Louisiana, of course, with the hurricane, um, it, it is part of that, but they, they're dealing with that. Um, Georgia is a state that had sort of like a burgeoning film, uh, which is still kind of growing there, where it's almost like sort of like this, uh, uh, I don't know what the, the, the right term is, but it's like sort of like a counter to to Los Angeles um, that Atlanta is sort of growing as, as a film area. And so it, over time, it becomes cheaper. And you, you notice, like, especially with the Bruce Willis movies, a lot of those ones are shot in the United States because it ends up being cheaper to shoot in Michigan or in uh, Louisiana or, or one of those areas. And you lose this, this sort of this Eastern European thing that was happening a lot in the 2000s. And this is kind of one of the last ones in there um, in, in that area. But it was always this thing. It's always kind of a fun thing when you watch some of these movies that take place in either Bulgaria or Hungary or something like that. And you see like this one did a good job. I think, again, Dolph was always very cognizant of some of those little touches. But um, this one did a good job of not showing us anything that had like signs that were in like Bulgarian or something like that. They were just obviously not Russian. Um, this one didn't have that as much. Um, but you, you see that, especially in the Seagal ones, where you would just be like, OK, that's definitely not something in Russian or something like that. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I did notice, um, like because like er, a couple of months ago, I, I watched uh, another Dolph film and that he directed The Mechanic. And I yes. did, I do remember, that I think there's like a car chase or something there where they're, they're like going through a city and like there's clearly like a Bulgarian flag waving in the background. You're like, yes. that's, 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 but uh, yeah, so like, yeah, I, I know I was aware that um, there was a lot of DTV action that was uh, filmed in, in Bulgaria at this time. And, and it's funny because like anytime I'm doing a podcast, recording a podcast about a film, I always end up going down like, uh, IMDb rabbit holes and I discovered that um, you know this was made in 2009 that there was about half a dozen people in the cast of this uh, film that were also in the 2009 Val Kilmer film which I've not seen double identity um, so like <laughs> Yes. So they're so, really spreading the cast thin. <laughs> yeah, well, in particular, I recognized um, uh, Risto Shopoff, who plays the president in this, because, um, yeah, I, I did that movie for um, uh, uh, Francis Rizzo III has a, has a, a podcast, the Kilmer cast, where he does kind of all the films of Val Kilmer. And he's had me on to talk about some of his direct-to-video movies. And, yeah, we, we, we talked about that one. Um, I listened to that episode. That's it. So I've not seen the film, but I have listened to that episode of uh, Kilmer Cast. <laughs> yes. Yeah, like, what, what was it? They they weren't doctors without borders. They were something else. Um, oh yeah, was... I, I can't I can't remember what the the organization was, but it was supposed to be the, it was supposed to be basically to, you know uh, Medicine Sans Frontier, you know, but right. uh, but uh, but using a different name. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. The other thing, too, is, of course, you know, Fred, he's, he's from Long Island. So obviously New York City, you know, he knows it really well. And you, at the end of the movie, they just dress up some part of uh, of Romania to make it look like New York City. And it was like, you know, it's like, yeah, what, what was that supposed to even look like? Like, what part of New York was that supposed to be? Um, yeah, you, you always see that, that kind of thing. And I guess that's the thing, too, with Americans, right, is that we, you know, Americans generally aren't as, as worldly. And so we would know the difference between Bulgaria and, and Russia. So just, you know, whatever, Eastern Europe, will, it's all the same to us. And so just throw it together in there like that. Whereas actually for the people who watch these action movies, we actually have fun seeing some of those little mistakes that they make with those kinds of things. Yeah. I think like, um, 
yeah, it was. I, I guess like this movie gets away with it because most of the action happens within the concert hall. Yeah. Um, so like it, it avoids all that. It avoids all the kind of Bulgarian flags waving in the background or like <laughs> it, it, you know signs clearly not in Russian or, or whatever. Um, and then like they can you know because like they're in the concert thing and and they can you know they can make Russian signs or whatever and. Um, you know, so I think that uh, yeah, it avoids a lot of that. Um, although it is quite funny because I guess the the kind of humorous aspect is that it's weird. Like having watched all these action movies, you know, from the eighties to the present day, like I am now not convinced I know what a Russian accent is because. <laughs> All I'm aware of is watching action movies and British and American actors doing this voice. I am Russian, <laughs> yes. You know, like, and I'm like, I'm not sure that's necessarily a Russian accent. I've heard, like, Russian people speak. I'm not. But, like, when I think Russian, that's the accent I think of because I've seen so many action movies. Um, so, <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, it's interesting because I... I taught English as a second language um, for for a period of time, and um, and I, I still kind of work in that industry. But I remember um, I would uh, I would have students from Russia, um, and yeah, hearing them talk like one of the things that that a lot of times people doing the accent miss is that articles they have a lot of trouble with articles because I guess in Russian they don't really have them, so it's not like you know I watch the game, it's like a watch game, you know, and stuff like that. Right. Um, but there are a lot of other aspects of the language that, yeah, they they don't they just use like you said just the accent, but they don't you know there's a lot of things that they miss that that um you know that native speakers just you know naturally uh, have when they speak the language and um so yeah it's kind of funny like you have the Dolph Lundgren I must break you or something like that um as kind of like the best interpretation of a of a good Russian accent but yeah it is funny that we don't really have I guess um there's this guy Andrew Nevsky who uh, has been making his own action movies, who is Russian. And so I guess he's probably the best bet that we have for a good Russian accent if we, we watch one of his movies. Yeah, no, that that's true. That's 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 true. Um, and then, I mean, like, there was a Russian action movie that I saw a couple of years ago that, that was really good, that was kind of like a kind of Russian action black comedy. Um, and now I can't remember the name of it. Um, it, it, I, anyway, uh, yeah. So, so I, I have heard, I have heard um, uh, real, real Russian accents. I think the guy's name was like Kirill Sorkov. Oh yes, yeah, um, uh, yeah. Uh, so, or Sokolov, uh, Kirill Sokolov. Um, yeah. Yeah, why, why, why don't you just die? It was was the name of the film. <laughs> always the most exciting, always the most exciting part of any podcast episode. Frantic googling. <laughs> that's awesome. Yeah, is that I'm trying to see if that's a? Oh, you actually get rented on Prime here in the U.S. That could, could be a really interesting one. I like. Oh that. no, it's a great film. It's really funny. It? It's it's got lots of bloody action. It mainly takes place in in one apartment building, but it really makes the most of that space. It's really it's a great fun time. Yeah. <laughs> it looks like it. It looks like this could be a good one. I have to check this one out because, like I said, it's a it's available to rent for like like two dollars here in the U.S., which isn't bad for for a rental um, on on Prime. So. Um, 
yeah, and it might be available to stream. You never know with that kind of thing if a, a streaming site will have it as well. So that yeah, that one definitely looks like a lot of fun. I, it, it's it's funny. Um, yeah, you talk about the the the, the Russian accent because it, it it's mostly Northern Europeans who play Russians, right? If it's not Brits or Americans doing the accent, right? It's Schwarzenegger or um, which I guess I don't know if is Austria considered Northern Europe. I guess it's no, not of, really. Uh, it's kind yeah. of Middle Europe. Um, no, it's, no, Northern Europe is really like you're talking really the Scandinavian countries or like, you know, like kind of, um, or things like Iceland, um, yeah. you know, you know, things like that. That's kind of more Northern Europe. I, t- I take, I presume I am, I mean, I guess Scotland's Northern Europe too. Um, <laughs> 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 yeah, we were, the, right, we was the, it's, it's funny here in America. Um, they use this term continental a lot to describe like, you know, things being like really nice or something like that. And it's like, they don't, you know, it's always kind of funny whenever I hear continental being used, like actually as like what it's meant to be as terms of like Europe versus like the, the British Isles. Um, and uh, it is kind of funny, like, yeah, the, um, in America, yeah, it's like, you know, the continental this or the continental that, you know, it's supposed to be like some kind of luxurious thing or some like nicer version of something um, as opposed to just it's, you know, like the continent, continental Europe versus, the, you know, the, the islands or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I guess like um yeah, I think in English that is a term that is used like, you know, I I guess it is made, made to use as like the difference between like like the British Isles or like continental Europe. Um but then it's also employed in a kind of like to mean uh kind of kind of classy or whatever cuz like <laughs> you kind of it kind of infers kind of classiness like you know when um where you know when you go to a hotel and they have a continental breakfast which just means like it's like it's like a french it's like a croissant or whatever you know it's it's like it's like some french or whatever you know like um but like it does sound kind of classy but it's just like no it doesn't really mean (laughs) right right. yeah it's funny i saw something recently that was sort of joking about sort of the perceptions of um of people from you know from uh, the UK sort of around the world and sort of like in America um right there's sort of like this this BBC buttoned up image of this is what what English is you know it's like this you know nice like you know BBC TV shows and Oxford English and all of that and like in Europe it's somebody who's drunk and passed out and the cops trying to wake them up at like you know four in the morning um you know because they're sort of like the the ugly tourist um there and uh, it's, it is kind of funny how in America like yeah, we we sort of have this this view, I think, just because of our our history as like Westerners who aren't Westerners um, that like you know we we sort of aspire to that that European history, um, but yet at the same time don't quite have it, and so there's that that idea of it's all so much more sophisticated uh, across the pond, um, and and I, I think, think yeah, using yeah, I mean, you even get that in terms of like culture that like um, that is like presented to the world, you know, particularly. Yes particularly with the, the the English or whatever like that does tend to be like the two thing you know like you either get like the kind of what I call the kind of posh hussies dramas you know like you know you get like the kind of Downton Abbey type thing or you get like or you get like the kind of social realist type thing you get the kind of council estate kind of Ken Loach stuff um uh, or you know or you get the kind of you know, like, you know, cutting back to something like a, Avengement, you get the kind of what, what you know, uh, is often classified in a, in a, in British culture as kind of geezer films, you know? Yeah. 
Um, and Avengement is a, a cut above your average, well, a cut above your average kind of geezer film. Because, like, that's a lot of what the DTV market in the UK is, like in England, is like, that's what that is. It's like kind of low rent gangster films. Yeah. Um, like, that's like, yeah, that. that's a lot of what directed the director video market is in, in the UK. Um, kind of like snatch knockoffs. Um, or you know things that are like um, uh, yeah the kind of like obviously the kind of best examples of the British gangster films are, are the, the things like Snatch or Sexy Beast or whatever but these are kind of much lower down the tent pole kind of thing <laughs> yeah, right well yeah because that's the interesting thing with um with Shogun films with that movie Nemesis they did recently where they were sort of taking that idea of the DTV gangster film and trying to make something a little different with it like you know it's Billy Murray kind of like you know uh playing kind of a, you know, a, a more enhanced role and that the different, you know, actors playing more enhanced roles than that. Cause yeah, it, cause we, that, that, you know, we get a lot of those movies here in the U S um, you know, it's, uh, you know, Craig Bearbrass kind of movies where, yeah, mm -hmm. or Nick Moran. Yeah. You just get a, a good chunk of them. And, and like you said, yeah, you know, it, it's easy to kind of go through a bunch of them at once um, and, and, and see them all. And then I think in the U S we we're kind of devolving with DTV stuff being like these Bruce Willis, formulaic films that are just pumped out like five or six a year and just you know get whatever actor that used to be popular in the states put them on the marquee with that th that name and, and and just pump it out there and and see how many streams it can get yeah yeah for sure and i was uh I think like it's good though that like um, you know with a movie like Avengement that the likes of Craig Verbas you know um who actually isn't a terrible actor like he's 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 kind of an okay screen presence you know getting a little bit more opportunity to do something he can cut teeth in to because a lot of them are just terrible like you know I kind of feel sorry for actors like uh, Craig Freerbass and Nick Moran and and Billy Murray who I you know aren't terrible actors but are generally the name person in a awful gangster film. <laughs> right. Well, because that was the thing with Nemesis where, where Nick Moran's playing this disgraced police officer. And he you, you could tell, like you said, like he just really wanted to sink his teeth into this role because he was just so happy to be doing something other than some guy at a pub telling somebody to kill somebody else or something like that. Yeah. And, and actually, talking of uh, a kind of British um, actors, I was wondering... What you thought of um, Dave Lagano as as the villain Oleg? Because I was a little bit not disappointed, but like he's like a solid screen presence. But having watched a lot of action movies uh, and um, a lot of kind of DTV action as well, um, he feels like the main henchman rather than the main villain. And I don't know if you got that same sense. Yeah, no, I definitely did. Like you, when I first watched this movie, this is a really great great point that you bring up here because um, when I first watched this movie, I think I was expecting somebody within like maybe the president's inner circle or somebody like that to be the real like leader of this because of the way uh, Logano's character was portrayed in here. And and I wonder now as we're talking about this movie almost being a vehicle for Dolph, if he left that baddie character. Um, if he, he kind of left a little to be desired there with that, because I think you're right with Legano, it would have been nice to have seen him be a little bit more of that fun, 
diabolical diehard baddie that we didn't get here. Yeah, that's true. And like, it's interesting the way the film sets up, I think, because after the initial takeover of, of the concert hall, um, we get this uh, tactical military unit who turns up um, outside the, the concert arena. And um, with there's like a kind of there's a kind of stationary unit um, with a, a, a bunch of computers and stuff that people are working on. Um, that we've got some CIA agents, we've got like a general from the army, we've got this female major who seems to be doing the majority of the work, um, and nobody else seems to be doing much. Um, and then we've got uh, what we seem to. I think must be the defense secretary. People just refer to him as Mr. Secretary um, <laughs> in, in his scene. So I think he must be the defense secretary. Now, he is very much costumed like a villain. He's got like a kind of, he's got his uh, a coat kind of draped over his shoulders like a mafia boss. He is very dramatically uh, smoking a cigarette that in a cigarette holder and kind of he's always kind of in a dark corner in the room kind of just muttering orders and i was like oh, he's got to be one of the villains right because like he's dressed exactly like a villain you would dress a villain and then he's just not yeah, no, I'm glad you brought this up because I kind of forgotten that when I watched this, this you know, because, you know, I, I saw it back around you know, 09, 2010 when it first came out and reviewed it for the site and all of that. And I'd kind of forgotten watching it this time through that I had that vibe when I watched it the first time that like this, this baddie can't be the baddie. And I think you're right. I think he was one of the ones um, that the secretary was one of the ones um, that there was a sense of like one of these characters has got to be like the real baddie here, right? That there has to be somebody else who's like really in charge, that there's a plot twist coming, but then it never happened. Then I don't know if maybe there was originally supposed to be a plot twist and it was left on the cutting room floor um, in the interest, interest of keeping the runtime short. I'm not sure what happened there, but yeah, there, there, it felt like there should have been something there with the way that they presented um, the baddie in this film. Yeah, I, I do think so. It does feel like there should be more um, of a twist there. And I think yeah. the other thing that I thought was weird is is the the female major major Pavlakova. Yeah. Um, she discovers Oleg's background. Yeah. And I found that very strange that Oleg's background as the son of the general who killed himself and killed his wife. Um, in the opening scene, he's he's like the the son of of that general, um, and this is all about revenge. And that when we when the major is telling you that that is presented as if it's a twist, but then, but then because we've seen the opening scene, and then we saw the villain, we've already the audience. I mean, me, have already put two and two together and already think he's the son so we kind of already know it's for revenge so like so i'm like so do you think this is a twist because watching it doesn't feel like a twist i feel like i already know this information and the characters are just catching up with the audience now Right, which is always a rough sell, right, in a movie when it's like that, when we already know what's going to happen and we're just waiting for them to figure it out. Um, 
it's almost like like Chekhov's openings, you know, Chekhov's like whatever, you know, the scenes like we knew if they're going to give us a scene to open the movie with. Uh, it's almost like it, it should have come when she was giving the reveal. Right. That's when we should have had the scene that we opened the movie with. Um, it would have yes, made more because sense. That, that would have made that would have made sense. Like yeah. that would have made sense to me if if the opening scene was cut and put later in the movie when we're getting the when we're getting the flashbacks to that opening scene um when the major is giving the reveal. Because if you cut the opening scene and you see the gang operating the way they are, the mercenaries operating the, the way they are, and they're drilling into things and like um and then you just you do think it's all about money. You think it's all about money. So if you just take that opening scene out, then it is a twist because you, the audience, believe that this is about money. They're they're just um, trying to um, take people hostage, get more money. There's maybe some money in the concert, all you know, whatever. Um, and you're like, you're just like, this is just for ransom. And then you're like, oh no, it's for revenge. And it it would have been like a pretty easy thing to do like it's it's a very short scene just don't have it the the start of the movie yeah it's almost like with die hard if the beginning of the movie hans is telling the gang like yeah we can't wait to get these bonds that we can you know these whatever that you know the money that we're going to get and we're going to pretend to be terrorists right and 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 then when the when the twist happens later, you know it's like we're, we're, we want Bruce Willis to find out like no Bruce these guys aren't aren't doing this to for 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 hostages or whatever they're doing it because they want the money. It's kind of the same idea, right? If you give us that reveal at the beginning, um, yeah, it's it's a good point. It's one that I I didn't. It's not that I guess it's not that necessarily that I didn't catch it. It was like almost like I was like, well, of course, yeah, this is this is what these guys are doing here. Um, but you're right. It was like it, it can be kind of a I think if the movie didn't have as many fun moments that it had in between, where Dolph is dispatching baddies and he's, you know, uh, uh, fighting with these with these these characters, um, with you know, beating people up with with guitars and things like that, then you'd look at it and be like, you know, come on, just just figure this out. Like, yes, we we all know what these guys are here for, um, you know, or or even it could have been a better plot twist too. I think with James Chalk's character, um, if he was just like. Maybe he, you know, that these characters didn't know that, that that's what this main character wanted for his his it wasn't, you know, the motivation for for holding the president and his daughter's hostage. Like that would have even been for a better plot twist with James Chalk because we get that plot yeah. twist where James Chalk's character decides to um, turn state's evidence or he's, he's going to sell them out to um, uh, get a, a cut a deal with, with the, the authorities. It would have made more sense if he's like, oh, they're not doing this for money. I'm not getting any money out of this. Yeah. Well, then the hell with this guy. I'm going to. You know, uh, I'm going to sell him out. That would have made. I that do. I do think that is. Too. I do think that is quite interesting the way they set that up. I right. do because I do think that 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 kind of almost works because we do get a sense that these guys are not necessarily like Oleg's boys kind of thing. Right. Yeah. You do get a sense that Oleg has kind of collected a bunch of mercenaries, some of whom may know Oleg's plan, some of whom may not. You do get that sense of like there is because there's like um, there, there's some guys who, who clearly are just thinking it's all about money. So like are, are a bit confused when Oleg is like, haha, I'm going to blow everything up. And you, people are like, what? No. Eh? Um, right. So like there, there is a sense of that that these are just guys that Oleg has hired and they're not necessarily like Oleg's army kind of thing. Yeah. Um, so I think that's done 
pretty well. Even though it is quite funny that like um, there is a certain point kind of just after they've taken over the, the, the concert arena. And also, I was just thinking about like watching this movie. I was thinking like there is a bit... Ro- just after they take over the concert arena, when you see people like kind of running and fleeing at the concert doors. And it was at that moment before I was just like having fun with it. And like, um, after it, I, I was just kind of having fun with it as well. But there was that one specific moment where you see all these people running at the concert doors. And I was like, ah, shit. Yeah. You couldn't make this film now. Cause like, it's just like, it's just like one of those things that like after the the, the Barakan attack in, in, in Paris uh, and the Manchester Arena attack in the UK, it's just like, uh, yeah, no, people would not, I don't think, I think people would react against this film in like a different way that like obviously in 2009, you know, you wouldn't have had, you know, you didn't have those like concert um, attacks that you had in the mid 2010s with the mid to late 2010s with, with ISIS. Um, so like, I, I think, yeah, I think people would be more uncomfortable with certain scenes in this movie um, than than they were in in two thousand and nine, or or I would have been in, in two thousand and nine. But I don't think it it spoils it. I don't think it takes away from it. It was just there was just a couple of moments um, in the initial uh, concert arena takeover that I was like, ugh. <laughs> well, because you you know what, what they probably would the way they probably would have mitigated it now is they wouldn't even be allowed to fill the concert yet right like they probably would have done like they may have had like a concert sequence in a different city and then she's coming to do the concert here and before the concert even starts that's when the takeover happens and yeah then, they probably then, do something like that yeah to, yeah to kind of to kind of mitigate those kind of screaming crowds coming out of an arena kind of thing yeah 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 yeah, yeah because you're right like i think that's that's one of the things i think with these movies is that they've especially with the action movies, that they always try to be more extreme than what could really happen with this idea in mind that, like, okay, if we're more extreme and it's just so completely outlandish, it, it maintains this fantasy element to it. Yeah, and, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, and then there's always that sense of, like, okay, well, no, then then reality starts to catch up with some of these things. I mean, especially here in the United States with, with mass shootings happening constantly. I mean, that's another piece here, you know, at least this is a little bit different because it is sort of like a controlled takeover kind of thing. But yeah, there's always that sense of like wanting it to be larger than life, like that, you know, big explosions, big, you know, and, and, but then there's always that mindset of like, is what we're doing, could it have a, a sort of a triggering effect on, you know, situations that have happened in the world that make us look like we're not, um, we're not sensitive to those kinds of things. Yeah, absolutely. It's always got to be that kind of, you know, because you don't mind, watching something that's got like that kind of elevated uh, and i don't mean elevated in terms of like uh you know classy or whatever but i, yeah. I mean elevated <laughs> yeah. in terms of like being fantastical um yeah. because you can you, you can you can be like oh well that's not real life you know people yeah. don't uh you know people don't <laughs> like their their heads don't explode like watermelons like that um or you know or like you know you know certain things you know these, these certain things don't don't happen you know you watch a movie like uh commando that i guess is a good right. example of like it's so outrageous it's so over the top you can't take any of it seriously as being part of like grounded reality so you just roll with it yeah. um and yeah so there is always that 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 kind of dangerous edge and if if the film does have weaknesses, I think that uh, one of the weaknesses is the couple of moments 
um, it tries to be gritty like it yeah. doesn't it doesn't work i think like there's a lot of fun to be had with this movie and we should probably talk about some of the most fun scenes straight, straight after this but i think the moments that it tries to be kind of heavy or emotional or like it tries to be kind of uh or it tries to kind of push buttons i don't think it works i don't think the the scene there's a scene where dolph kind of comes in the concert hall and he kind of trips and falls and then he kind of sees all these uh, dead bodies in 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 amongst the crowd and stuff like that and he's kind of like taking it in and i think it's supposed to be like a big kind of emotional scene but because the rest of the movie is so kind of tonally light that it just it feels like too much of a gear shift yeah especially when you start getting to like innocent people body counts right that that's yeah. You know, it's one thing when it's like paid, uh, whether it's paid guards or or paid henchmen, you know, and they're kind of getting gunned down with an Uzi and they're kind of shimmying or like, you know, baddie who 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 has an active role in trying to kill Dolph and Dolph, you know, shoves a knife through his head or something like that. You know, that's more fun. But when it's like poor, innocent concert goers that are getting gunned down in, in you know, going to see, a, um, you know, a concert, um, you know that's a little like you said it's a little grittier and, and and that was one area where for me i think there was a moment that was kind of a, a little bit sort of triggering with um you know one of the school shootings that happened recently here in the united states in, in uvalde texas where uh, one of the girls to survive pretended that she was dead um by mm -hmm. like covering herself in blood which is something that dolph does in this film right he he drapes himself in one of the dead bodies and pretends that he's dead while the baddies go through um the area and of course they also gun down an innocent uh, concert goer who uh i guess I guess there was that sense in an action movie too, where if you're not smart enough, you deserve to die. And this character who panics and like kind of runs through the um the the, the theater the, the seating area uh, while the baddies are doing their final sweep to see who's still alive and gets killed. I think that's another area of these movies that I I don't always like this this mm -hmm. idea that someone's complicit in their own death. Um, yeah, I I I yeah I don't I don't necessarily like that either, and I think. The other thing, and it, it happens quite a lot um, in what well, can happen in, you know, like these kind of horror movies or, or DTV action or horror. Um, but things that happen in films that are edgy for the sake of being edgy, I yeah. don't like. And there is one scene in this movie that I felt was really unnecessary and I, I kind of reacted against. And that was... There was a moment where one of Oleg's henchmen is kind of like, oh, what are we doing? Why are we still hanging about? Where's the money kind of thing? And he's obviously a bit bored and a bit frustrated. And he then grabs uh, one of the, the Russian president's daughters, who's actually played by um, Dolph Lundgren's own daughter, who would have been about 13 at the time. And she's kind of like Dolph and Venus are around and kind of hear her screams. And I think it's essentially insinuated that this henchman was about to rape this 13 year old. Yeah. And I was like, no movie. No, I like I there's no reason that, you know, that this is just you're just being edgy for the sake of it. Like, you know, you're just throwing this out here to create extra uh, tension and dread and like no I, I i i don't like that 
Yeah. And I think there is always that. I, I mean, I think for Dolph, maybe the fact that it was his daughter that he maybe felt like, OK, I'm, I'm going to I'm going to put my own daughter in this this situation rather than having somebody else's um, child actor be in that situation. And maybe that was part of it. But you're right. It, it wasn't necessary. Like we didn't necessarily need it in the film. Um, but also, too, I mean, there's something about action movies that I think I always get a kick out of um, is this idea that like, OK, these two girls, these two young girls go through this extremely traumatic experience where they're being held hostage. Like you said, there was an yeah. attempted rape in, in one situation. But then at the end of the film, they're just completely fine. And they're like, here, Dolph, can, can you autograph our, our CD and all of this kind of stuff? And there's that, always that sense that like once the hero saves the day, all of the other stuff is completely done and gone and it doesn't matter. And, and it's always fascinating, right? That, that, yeah, there's, there's no PTSD that comes as a part of any of that. And, and I think that's part of what they do here with this thing too. I think that as well, <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, like, yeah. oh, you know, she's, she's being uh, assaulted by this guy, this, this gross guy here, but she'll be over it by the end of the movie and be perfectly fine. There's not going to be any lingering effects to that. And, and so it's, so it's like, on the one hand, they're, they're, they're being dark, right? For the sake of being dark. But then on the other hand, there's no ramifications to that darkness, right? That it's like it's like it's dark for the sake of being dark for a minute, and then we're we're okay again. Uh, which I, I always think with action movies, it's like, you know, there, there are a lot of times where there are women who do get raped in movies where it's just sort of like, ah, you know, they they kill the the guy who did it, and they're they're perfectly fine at the end. When it's like that's not really how that works. Um, and uh, yeah, that you you know. There's no, you know, they, they, they could just not go there and, and, and not have to worry about any of it. Yeah. And it always feels quite ugly that, like, right. um, you know, and I, I, obviously, I mean, obviously because she's 13, you know, obviously yeah. they wouldn't do anything, you know. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, they obviously wouldn't, wouldn't do anything in that area, um, yeah. you know. Um, but, um yeah, I, I, you always, yeah, there's always something quite, quite ugly about the kind of cheap use of that, and um, you know, it's like um, even though Kickboxer is my my favorite uh, John Claude Van Damme film, um, they use that kind of thing that is like a weirdly semi-regular trope in kind of 80s and 90s action movies or what i would call the inspirational rape that's really right. only there to motivate our hero more and has yes. nothing to do with the women which feels disgusting yeah yeah exactly and and it's almost like this film was just sort of skirting on the edge of it because it was almost like they felt like they had to like they felt like they mm. it's almost like Dolph felt like he needed to have some darkness in the movie when he really didn't you know the movie didn't no. need it it, 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 it would have been perfectly fine without I think we would have been perfectly fine with, you know, the girls not even being hassled by. And I guess he needed his daughter to have the scene where she's being held hostage by the baddie and he has to somehow navigate that to, to get, you know, to take her out. But um, but yeah, you're, you're, you're right there. It kind of all felt a little bit off in that sense. And it was like you said, tonally, the rest of this film is just like goofy Dolph drumming, women saying how hot he is, him like with great one liners. Like what, what, yep. is it, what was the line about, you know, dying is easy, rock and roll is hard. Um, which which know, is also the, the tagline for the movie I discovered, right. which is great. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And like there's lots of fun things. I mean, like um, Dolph uh, apparently has like Michael Myers super strength in this movie because like the, like the first guy he kills, he pushes, he impales him 
um, with a drumstick that goes up through the guy's throat and through his eye. So he like sticks it into the guy's throat and up through his eye. You're like that. I mean, with a drumstick, you know, like yeah, it's, yeah. it's amazing. Um, so like yeah, and there's lots of goofy fun like that. And he's you know, and he's like even when he was fighting that guy, and he's like, hey, what's the hair, dude? And like you know, yeah. <laughs> like you know, um, yeah, I loved all of that stuff. <laughs> yeah. and, and I love that we we have Chekhov's abs in this, right? Where he's got yeah. his. He's, he's, he's shirtless for a good chunk of the film where he's just wearing this open vest and they're showing off his six pack quite a bit. And it's like, if you're going to show a six pack throughout most of the movie, then the baddie has to slash said six pack in the final fight scene. And so, they, you know, the baddie's oh, yeah. got his knife and, of course, shoom, just cuts right through, you know, just slashes the abs. And, of course, you know, those are those are those 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 injuries in action movies that are, are are considered superfluous that actually um could be like really damaging in real life um but you know it's like yeah if we're going to show these abs off we've got to use them somehow at the end of the movie and and i thought that was great too and it was like you said it was dolph wanted to show off that hey you know i've, I've been working out still which i think when you compare him to seagal who um it was not in the best shape um you know at, at that time it was a sense of like, hey, I'm 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 in my fifties here, but I'm I can still really do this kind of thing, and I, I kind of appreciated that. But it was kind of a fun thing too that he was like, you know, I'm I'm not going to really wear much in terms of uh, of clothing for my upper torso. Yeah, I, absolutely. I mean, he he's very much dressed um, like a kind of he's he's very much dressed like a kind of. Um, a rock star but like a rock star of his age like he is yeah. still dressed like a kind of rock star of the 80s who's not moved with the times right. like yeah. you know like <laughs> like so yeah. so he is you know he's still kind of age appropriate in that sense i guess like but like so yeah he, he kind of matches up but like he's he's having a lot of fun um like you say you know obviously he is a bit older he can't do quite what he can uh, he could do uh, in the early 90s in terms of the kicks and stuff but he's still kicking ass with the action there's a lot of fun action scenes but even like his his acting i think is fun in this movie just the way he plays the character like there's like little interactions that i really loved like there's a bit near the end of the movie where he's where he's about, where he's uh, trying to save the president, and he comes into the uh, room where the rehearsal room where the president is being kept hostage, and he says, uh, "How are you doing, dude? I mean, sir." <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah. I mean, we we got a kick out of. I mean, there's a scene where he's smoking weed, and uh, and he, he kind of has to like stop midway through, and that's sort of how I think it's right. It's, it's the fact that he's smoking weed that gets him into that flying the ointment role um, yeah it, it is because he goes in he goes into the bathroom and then he does like the thing i love about that scene is like um when when the terrorists like when everything kind of kicks off like the bathroom there's like an explosion which kicks open the bathroom door and the bathroom door like falls on top of Dolph and then <laughs> Dolph gets up and does like the airplane gag of like i really need to give this up you know like, right yes yes <laughs> Right. Yeah. And there are a lot of those touches. And I think that's the thing with Dolph when he's directing his movies. And, and again, this is also part of his screenplay as well, that he he kind of, you know, I mean, you know, again, like we talked about, there's some some tonal issues. But overall, the movies tend to be a little bit more solid in this sort of fun DTV realm when he's making them. And and I think this this was like a really great example of that, that like you get those little touches here and there that he made sure were in the film. 
uh, that you, you may not necessarily get if it's like like you talked about where it's a director who's just doing a job. Dolph is just there doing a job. Everybody's just there to just kind of bang this thing out and get it on the shelves as soon as possible. This has a little bit more personality to it, which I, I definitely appreciated. Yeah, and I think like there's some really fun action set pieces as well because uh, when like who because the the guy who becomes his kind of buddy uh, Mikhail, he kind of first meets him when um, him and Mikhail's like mentor are about to be executed in a kind of live video execution. Um, and then uh, Dolph is backstage. He turns up all the all, all the things on on the the soundboard, and then he lets out this almighty guitar riff. And it's like kind of done in this like uh, when he does the guitar riff, like everything kind of slows down. It's kind of it's kind of it kind of almost freeze frames on him like yeah. ripping this guitar. And, and then like you you've got he's he's in all his glory. You know we're we're really right. checking out his abs and his frosty tips and like you know and and then he 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 bum rushes the stage breaks a guitar right over a guy's head um and then with the same guitar he's still got part of the guitar in his hand with the strings and he impales a guy with the rest of the guitar after smashing the guitar over his head and it's just like there's just moments like that that that's like that that's just glorious stuff right there yeah and and you just you don't always get that with the direct-to-video movies that are made today that like they 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 don't always have that sort of inspired piece it's really just about like let's line people up with guns on either side shoot as many times as possible have someone get hit fall over you know that kind of thing and 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 it it, it was one thing that was nice about this that Dolph did was that I think he did play with the space but he also he wanted to make sure that there was a, a rock and roll element to this film whether it was like you talked about with that scene, I mean, he stabs the guy with 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 guitar sticks, I believe as well. Um, you know that that kind of thing where I think he he didn't want it to just be diehard in a concert venue, but he wanted there to be that element of of music involved with it that I I really appreciated. Yeah, he did kind of um, use the environment. I did enjoy that part of it particularly you know obviously once we get into the third act you know he does decide that he's he's going to get back on the guns you know he's he's, yes. he's fine with it now he's you know he's overcome it all um is is kind of aversion for guns that he's apparently had for years in about an hour but like it's fine it's fine um and, you know so, so so yeah there there, there is a but before we get to the guns um he does use the environment and like you know, he does almost like, uh, you know, what I think of as like the, the Jackie Chan thing. And he just uses the nearest things to him, you know. So he's got drums, yeah. you know, he's always carrying drumsticks around. So, he, you know, he impales a gang with a drumstick, as I mentioned. And, you know, he hits a guy with a guitar. And, you know, and so there is this kind of uh, interaction with the, the kind of uh, musical environment. Is There's really fun in the, the first half of the film. And I think like that great kind of freeze frame moment on the on the on that epic guitar riff is, is yeah, that's one of my uh, favorite favorite moments um of the film although i will mention as well that in terms of the action sequences and i know that dave Lugano was um was an mma fighter before he became became an actor um which is why he uses like the triangle chokehold at one point which is 2009 very mma moves very popular a lot of triangle chokeholds a lot of <laughs> lot of arm bars like it seemed like a heavy time for mma moves and action movies um but it, yeah so, so but the fight there 
even though uh, Dolph is more restricted in terms of his kicks, and so it's a more of a kind of punch-heavy fight, I think like it's a, it's a really good fight there as well. Yeah, I think he appreciated having Lugano there um, to to do these fight scenes, which I, I thought was really cool. I think that's that was one thing about Dolph. I think because he was a practitioner, you know, before he became a um, you know a, a film star, he always appreciates that that part of of of, of fighting. And I think he wanted to sort of incorporate some of those things. I mean, he'd also, I think he had worked with um, uh, Arlovsky, um, I think, so kind of around the time of this, I think. Um, oh, and he, yeah, because I think that's the same year, because I think that's Universal Soldier Regeneration. I think that's this, right. I think that's also 2009. Yeah, and, and yes. that, yeah, that's Andrew Arlovsky. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, now I actually saw Arlovsky fight um, in a UFC event. The only UFC event I've ever been to was in a, in Connecticut in 2005, I believe, or 2006. I think it was 2005. Um, but Arlovsky was the, the heavyweight champ at that time, and he was fighting this other guy, Paul Buentello. And, you know, we're up in the, the kind of in the, the higher up seats area, and we're watching as, um, as they're fighting. Uh, Buentello, it looks like Arlovsky has, like, ducked down to give him, like, a takedown. And then the ref comes in and stops the fight, and we're all booing. We're like, why did you stop the fight? He's just giving him a takedown. And then what we saw was that Arlovsky actually punched him, caught him cold on the chin, and knocked him out. And then he was ducking to get out of the way of this falling uh, heavyweight um, who was landing on him. It was like a 15-second fight. Um, it, was, it was over that quickly. Uh, yeah. so I, always remember, I mean, I saw Arlovsky. We, we were, my friend and I were eating at a, a restaurant in the casino where the event was being held. Um, and we saw Orlowski come in to, to get food. And, um, I mean, he just, you know, it, it's kind of, it'd be interesting to see if he, if he ever kind of, you know, kind of grew into being more of an action guy, but I mean, yeah, he was just an immense fighter and I could see like how Dolph would have probably wanted to take some of those elements from, you know, working with him and working with Legano to, uh, to sort of add those pieces, add those touches in. And I, I, I did kind of like those a little bit. Like you said, the triangle choke, things like that. And especially for someone like him where like sort of his lower torso and the kicks aren't what they used to be, he could add those elements in and make it still more exciting. Yeah, I, 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 absolutely. And also we get like, um, I feel like they kind of miss an opportunity because like um, basically Lagano's character Oleg gets impaled by like a kind of steam pipe. And I was expecting like a commando style payoff, like which never arrived. So I was, I was like, oh. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's almost like it was an ode to to commando without fully being that ode, right? Like I guess he didn't want to go that far to be telling him to let off some steam. But the the funny thing is, he didn't have any one liner about that really, which I was kind of hoping with the one liners that he'd had throughout the film that he would have had something. For when he yeah, that's why. That's why I was expecting because, like, yeah, he's, there's been like kind of one-liners throughout the 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 films and like bits and pieces and the the kind of like don't touch the hair kind of thing and uh, there there are various lines in that in that way. So that's not not necessarily like going straight for like the commando like let off some steam, but like I was just expecting some sort of payoff line because there'd been uh, a a number of death payoff lines kind of throughout the movie um so i was like oh well the main villain has to get one you know like uh so, but 
apparently not. Yeah. <laughs> right, I know, because because that that's one of the all time greats, and because Commando is kind of the same thing, right? That it's like constantly sort of like these buildups, right? You know, sort of these these great one liners. You know, I, I had to let him go, you know, or uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, he's just taking a nap, or whether he's just sleeping or something. I can't remember because he, you know. He, kills that guy and it kind of makes it seem like he's sleeping you know yeah, he had a, he's having a nap or whatever yeah yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and so when we get to the point where where, where where bennett gets knocked through the steam pipe there you needed that line and we get it right with the let off you know let off some steam bennett or you know um yeah we, we never quite get that here um with that it, it is interesting like out of all the things he maybe i don't know if he just you know just couldn't think of a good one there because um, or maybe there's just nothing better than let off some steam. And so he wanted to leave I guess so. there. I don't maybe, know. Maybe, maybe there isn't. <laughs> yeah. well, well, Scott, as we wrap up here, what was, was there anything else uh, in, in command performance that, that you wanted to mention? Um, I'm trying to think now. Uh, no, I, I think, I think we've covered pretty much uh, everything. All the points I, I was, I, I had in mind uh to discuss, um, both in terms of the, the 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 positives and negatives, and even though I do want to mention, as uh, you know, for the the benefit of your listeners, that um, I, I should say that I did overall enjoy the movie, and I, I thought I thought it was a, a fun movie. I think there is a number of entertaining action sequences. I feel that you really get on board. Of just how much uh, fun that Dolph uh, is having. Oh, and and also, I knew immediately that I was going to enjoy this film or like this film because, like any great cheesy action movie, the credits exploded onto the screen. (laughs) (laughs) The credit, the title credits come up. And then the screen explodes, and I was like, "Oh, that's that's a classic move right there. Well done. I'm I'm, I'm clearly going to be on board." <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I think I think you're right. The Dolph makes this movie in the vein of a of an action movie geek, the way you were talking about with with horror films, and I think that just like it, it makes for a really fun movie, and I think. This is one, um, you know, I've had um, the guys from Compass on, we've done what we call the unsung Dolph, where we talk about the, the Dolph movies that people don't necessarily talk about. And, and I think this is one that made one of my lists because it's not one that people talk about as much, but it, it is a really fun one. And, and when you go through Dolph's filmography, you can really hit some rough ones. Um, and this is definitely not a rough one. This is one that, you know, yeah, we, 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 we had, there were some, there, it's not a perfect movie. It has definitely some things to, to call to the carpet, but overall it's a fun time and it's a, it's a great way i think you know if you're looking for a 90 minute time killer this is definitely there and i think it's even kind of a fun one if you've got people over for a, a weekend night or something like that and you're looking for something fun i think there isn't too much in this one that could really be off-putting that in a, in a mixed group that they'd be like i can't watch this you know this is, this is too much i have, i absolutely agree and even some of the negative uh things that we've discussed I think like you kind of let it off the hook for a, a number of those things, and then when you actually get to the end of the movie, um, when you know Dolph is you know Dolph is in in his arm sling because he's been shot in the shoulder, which again is one of those action movie things where everybody can just shake off being shot in the shoulder. Um, <laughs> um, but anyway, uh, <laughs> you know, and then he's like signing CDs um, because apparently the president's daughters are secret fans of his man, uh, um, and the president's also a and they're playing one of the songs and 
And then he gives uh, Dolph a, a watch, uh, or the, the character Joe a watch that on the back of it says Rock and Load. Um, and uh, at the end, he goes into a limo with the, the pop star Venus, who he's now dating in a business partnership with. We're not sure. Um, <laughs> and and then he just like, he just like kind of, you know, in respect of the watch, he just kind of points to the screen and just says "rock and load," and then we just go into the title. We go into the end credits, and I'll, you know, with the exploding title to the begin with, and then him "rock and load" at the end and kind of point and wink at the screen. Oh, that's you know, eh, yeah, that's what I want from an action movie. So, um, you know, all all is forgiven with uh, some of the, the negative flaws. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I totally agree. This is this is definitely a fun one. I think if you're you know for people out there that haven't seen this, or I think if you have seen it and it's been a while, I think it's 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 kind of a fun rewatch as well. It's uh definitely definitely up there as, as one of the, the more fun Dolph movies uh, and one of the more fun action movies from this time period where. You, there are definitely a lot of duds out there too, so so this one definitely you you could you could feel safe in in watching. Well, well, Scott, as we wrap up here, is there anything that you wanted to plug? Well, uh, you will have uh, just days before this episode comes out, you will have appeared on on my podcast, All Nineties Action. All the time um, for Batman Returns. I, I think I mentioned that right at the start of the episode. I think that episode is planned to come out on December the twenty third, so like uh, something around that that kind of thing, just before Christmas. So it's kind of a Christmas special. And then also uh, in January, uh, you will be uh, coming back to all nineties action all the time. We've already recorded it, but like uh, it will come out in January when we'll be talking about Jackie Chan's. Uh, City Hunter, um, and then yeah, uh, with New Horror Express, we're we're wrapping up um, our uh, Guilty Pleasures uh, side series that we've been doing. Uh, we've been doing that for uh, yeah um, about. 30 months i guess because uh, we were doing that as a kind of monthly thing um that the last episode of that which is going to be a film called sleigh bells that should come around come out kind of just before christmas as well and then yeah going into 2023 new horror express still seeing fortnightly um yeah trying to get as many interviews with uh, different people in indie horror from from around the world i talked to people from various different countries and the, yeah, just keep an eye out for for all nineties action all, all the time as well. M- monthly episodes covering films uh, from nineteen ninety three. So come and check it out. See if any of your nineteen ninety three favorites are covered. Yeah. No. Well, I I guess I I have some insight into what ones are going to be covered. And I can say that there's definitely some fun ones coming for people. So uh, yeah, definitely definitely stay tuned for that. And also too, um, in your 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 sort of your archives on uh, all nineties action. Um, the the Bond movies that you the nineties Bond movies that you talked about I think uh, is another fun conversation um, I I think that's a a period of time for Bond that uh, I want to say I don't want to say that it's, it's been ignored it's just it's sort of like a it, it's it's kind of a, a, a interesting one because it's almost like a tale of two uh, uh, halves with that decade where you have the Dalton ones that are kind of late eighties into the nineties and then you got the the Brosnan ones um, but uh, it, it's a I think it's a fun time for Bond um, and I, I definitely dug the, uh, the the podcast episodes that you did on those. 
Oh well, thank you, thank you very much. There, there, there was a lot of fun to do. I, um, while it is is kind of weird, um, because I'm I'm very very left wing, so I generally hate <laughs> the worldview of Bond films. But I'm also a lifelong Bond fan, and uh, you know, like have uh, watched all the Bond films, a lot of them multiple times. Um, so that was really uh, that was a really a great season to do because you know I, I'm a massive uh, Bond nerd. And um, because I was born in 1985, the 90s Bonds are what what I kind of uh, grew up with, I guess. You know, they were um, amongst the the first ones uh, I saw. Um, And so I have a lot of appreciation and nostalgia for the, the Brosnan era. Um, or, or you know those those three '90s films. I have like uh, a lot less nostalgia for Die Another Day, but that's because that's a terrible, terrible film that we will not talk about any further. Um, but yeah, so so that was a lot of fun to do. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I totally get what you're saying about that too, because it is it's one of those things that you grow up with this idea of like the the Western centric worldview as sort of like this is this is how it is and this all makes sense, and then you get older and you're like. Yeah, maybe not so much. And it's so, but then it's like you watch those movies and it's like, yeah, there's that idea of, um, I, I don't want to use the term cancel culture because there's that idea, I think, that like, well, anything that, that people see as offensive, um, we shouldn't be seeing it as offensive. We should just, you know, accept it and enjoy it. And I don't think that's a good thing either. But uh, it's kind of like that thing where you parse it, right? You say, like, okay, I get sort of what's going on here that's bad, but I also, the, the, the fun stuff that's in here, it's good. And I can, you can, like, kind of like what we did with this movie, right? You can criticize the parts that, that, that don't work and, uh, and, and appreciate the parts that do, I guess. Yeah, I mean, that's very much um, what I do with a, a lot of action movies, I, I, I must say. You know, there, there's certain there's certain movies that I enjoy um, as movies, um, but and I enjoy the actors in them and I enjoy the colorful characters and I enjoy the action sex pieces. But like the overall kind of overarching kind of worldview, like I, I might not be on board with because like, you know, basically, if you are a liberal um, you got to parse them things if you're watching a lot of action movies, particularly a lot of Americans' 1980s action movies, which are just right-wing propaganda. But like you know, <laughs> but they're very fun, and um, you can and I can generally, if they stay fun, and, and if they don't take themselves too seriously, I can generally parse apart the parts that I like and kind of set to one side the odious right-wing propaganda. <laughs> Right, exactly. Well, it's like what happened with the '90s with with action movies with the war on drugs was that like, you we didn't realize we were being groomed to see the police officer as this person who is like constrained by horrible red tape. But if you just let them just go out there and be a rogue, they can take down these baddies all the all, you know all the time. And then you realize, well, actually, no, that that ends up being kind of a, a a problematic thing that like you know that that's there aren't any police officers that are so constrained by by rules that they're letting baddies go free. It's kind of the the opposite. But you have this like this groomed mentality of like, yeah, no, it's great. Go, you know, smash the crackhead, the crack den, you know, with a, with a, a bolt or a battering ram or whatever. And uh, yeah, but it is like, on the other hand, it's like the cop on the edge is so much fun that like, yeah, no, that's like, that's exactly right. You know, the, yeah. the, the maverick one arm army cop is yeah. a great to watch on film, right. but you know, obviously the real world equivalent of that terrible. <laughs> Yeah, and I think that was the thing at the time I didn't realize I was being groomed to want that 
that that version to be in real life. And then I, like, you know, one of the first things I had a friend who was a defense attorney who was telling me like, yeah, it kind of doesn't work like law and order, like, you know, like procedurals that you see on TV where like the, 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 the judge is like, oh, you, you found that Coke in that person's dashboard without, you know, uh, a search warrant. Oh, we're just throwing that out. He's like, no, that doesn't really work that way. It's you, if you've got, if you've got the Coke in your dashboard and the cop finds it, you're going to jail, even if it wasn't, you know, uh, there wasn't a search warrant to look through the car. And um, it, once you start, I started to kind of figure that kind of stuff out. I was like, okay, you know, the cop on the edge is, is it, it's its own thing. And I appreciate that, you know, the, the grizzled guy with his, his jean jacket or his leather coat and his five o'clock shadow, you know, smoking cigarettes and beating up guys all the time. It's fun in an action movie, but in real life, you got to kind of, yeah, see it as like, okay, I'm not going to allow that to affect my voting patterns and things like that in the United States. Oh, for, for, for sure not. Like, yeah. you know, it's like with the the the, the Bond thing, like um, <laughs> I love the Bond films and I love the actors who play Bond. Bond is a terrible character. He's an alcoholic sociopath, um, and and like Bond, you know, if you like, if you took Bond on like a serious level, like Bond is basically everything that is wrong with like Brit a, a, a conservative British mentality. Like, you know, he's he's misogynistic. He has, like, an imperialistic worldview that, you know, like, wants to go back to when, you know, Britannia ruled the waves, you know. Like, it's just, like, it's terrible, terrible character. But, like, if you just take him on, like, purely movie terms as, like, just, the, like, this kind of, uh, you know, uh, you know, I have punches first, ask questions later, kind of fun, kind of one-liner quipping kind of guy, you know, like it's fun to watch. So like, and some people can't park those things and some people can't like, you know, take the, you know, park the, the misogyny and the racism and, and like that imperialistic worldview to one side. And that's fine. I, you know, I understand if, if you can't uh, separate that, that's, 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 fine and i can understand if people hate the bond movies um on those terms but for me like i watch them and i enjoy the one-liners i enjoy the colorful villains i enjoy the kind of exaggerated kind of superhuman henchmen um you know like i enjoy the gadgets the exotic locations the cars you know all these things and yes I hate the worldview and I, you know, I hate all the, the, the conservative nonsense around the Bond films, but I can generally, while I'm watching them, kind of uh, push that over to one side. Uh, yeah, but that's but just I, me. <laughs> you know, I, I'm kind of the same way. I think originally I, it, it, I think that's what we're, I think we're going to be learning that more as we go, as we kind of go on in, in, you know, in years where we're like, okay, how do we, how do we separate or parse out the, the parts that, you know, and, and, and kind of, criticize the movie for the parts that are bad, but then appreciate the parts that are fun. And I think, um, yeah, it, it's it, sort of learning those parts. But I think, like you said, with those 90s Bond films, there there is almost like a, a, a longing for a past that wasn't necessarily good. Um, at the same time, there's a, a, a kind of a present in those movies with Pierce Brosnan that was a lot of fun. And I think, yeah, like you said, you kind of can put part the the longing for the past that wasn't good to the side and appreciate that present that was just so much fun with him. Yeah. And Pierce Brosnan is just a, a fun actor to watch. And yeah. um, 
just also like when revisiting the 90s Bond films, just a ridiculously beautiful man. Like I just like I this really struck me. I was like rewatching like Goldeneye and I was like, God damn, Pierce Brosnan was handsome. <laughs> Exactly. Well, it's funny because when I was watching Livewire um, for uh, the podcast episode that's going to um, kind of be out a couple before this that I did um, with, uh, uh, with the Exploding Helicopter, with that Will from Exploding Helicopter, we were talking about the the love scene that he has with um, the woman's name was Lila Orbach um, uh, in that movie. And I was saying how like in a lot of these movies, like we're talking about here in this, in this command performance movie, um, how it's like... Uh, you know, oh, you know, here's Dolph, this older guy with all these women fawning over him and all of that stuff. But here with, you know, with, with Live Wire, you're like, no, Lisa, Lisa, I said Lila, it's Lisa Eilbacher. Um, it's almost like she's sort of the one who's moving up in the love scene, right? That like she's fortunate enough that she can do a love scene with Pierce Brosnan. It had like a different feel to it when it's that kind of thing, as opposed to like, you know, the the main character getting the really beautiful woman that he really probably couldn't get in any other circumstance. Um, she's kind of the one who's in that circumstance here. Yeah, 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 yeah. For, for, uh, for, for sure. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, well, well, thanks again, Scott, for coming on. It was a lot of fun. Um, we'll definitely have to, to, to look at some other ones here, but I think, you know, Dolph is one. It's interesting. A lot of times people, when they come on for the first time, they do a Dolph movie. It just seems to be like okay. it's uh, it's it's the sort of the, the, the wheelhouse or the easier one to just kind of bang out a Dolph movie and get that one in there. But but I'm, I'm definitely be happy to have you on again. We can talk about whether it's it's horror or more, more action movies. And um, for people out there listening, definitely uh, check out uh, all 90s action. And um, yeah, definitely. Uh, 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 Sorry, new new horror express. Uh, check those movies out. Or sorry, check, check those podcasts out. I'm sorry, starting to I think uh, get towards the end here. I'm losing my, my, my train of thought a little bit, but uh, but check out New Horror Express and all '90s action all the time. And thank you again, Scott, for coming on. Oh, it's good good to be on. I'll be more than happy to come on again. Yeah. All right, excellent. Well, thanks everybody for listening, and we'll talk soon. Bye, everyone. <laughs>